This is VOCM Open Live. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, January the 5th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program on this command with an edition of the show. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. All right, so happy old Christmas Day Eve. Now, old Christmas Day is a really curious day on the calendar. Of course, the 12 days of Christmas begin on Boxing Day, and so tomorrow, the 6th, would be the 12th day, and consequently, old Christmas Day. So how do we arrive at this day? No, you know, you look back at what is a kind of a new creation with Tibbs Eve to kick off the Christmas season, and the 6th to shut her down. Now, for me, it doesn't mean a whole lot. It's generally the day we choose to take down Christmas decorations, and that's just out of habit. But why do we have old Christmas Day? So this date, in religious terms, liturgically speaking, is the Feast of the Epiphany. That's the day when the, uh, the wise men arrived on the scene. And then uh, completes the third part of the church's Christmas season, Advent, Christmas proper, and the Epiphany. So a day of celebration and some curious customs. But how did we arrive with the six being referred to as old Christmas Day? Okay, it's because the calendars changed. The Julian calendar, which was in play from uh, 446 BC, based on an incorrectly calculated solar year. Now, the error only amounted to about 11 minutes annually, but over hundreds of years, those minutes added up. By the time the error was detected, and they thought they should do something about it, it was in the 16th century, and the calendar was off by 10 days. The solution? The Gregorian calendar that we use today. Part of the fix was to eliminate the 10 days. So in 1582, Pope Gregory XIII decided that October 5th would be followed immediately by October 15th. Now, the the date changed virtually everywhere. Governments were inclined to listen to the Pope. But it wasn't until 1752 in Great Britain moved to the Gregorian calendar. By that time, a 11-day jump was required to fix the error. So they decided that 1752, September the 2nd, would be followed immediately by September the 14th. And speaking of curious traditions... So apparently there was a Newfoundland tradition. I don't know if it's abided by any longer, but the community would come together with different ingredients to uh, make their 12th fruitcake. And in this case, it would be a dark fruitcake. And then there's the T-bones. Folks might be aware of the old 12th cake, an old British tradition, but apparently people would take uh, to their ovens, bake 12 sweet buns, and go visiting door to door, giving a bun to each house they visit. Visiting was over when the buns were gone. And then there's a couple of wild ones. The animals will pray or talk. According to custom, possibly her animals talk or maybe witness them praying around old Christmas. It was pretty widespread belief that animals can talk at Christmas time. Most of that flowed from Europe. Last one, the willows will bloom. So apparently, what we now refer to as the pussy willow, uh, folklore says that the willow would bloom its silver buds on old Christmas Day and they would fade away at dusk on old Christmas Day evening. So kind of strange stuff. But anyway, for me, it's just taking on the decorations. All right, so Newfoundland Growlers back in action, first home stand of 2024, taking on the Utah Grizzly tonight at Mary Brown Center. Now, with the weather coming, generally speaking and historically, if there's power, the Growlers will play because Utah's here. They don't even have to go outside to get from the Delta to the rink, so looks like the Growlers game will proceed for now. No further update available at the moment. Quick, interesting sports note. So if you follow baseball history, you might be uh, familiar with the name Kennesaw Mountain Landis. 
He was a major league commissioner, most notably dealing with the 1919 Black Sox scandal and banning so many players, including Shoeless Joe Jackson, from future play. And I wasn't even aware of this one, but it was on this date in 1927 that Kennesaw Mountain Landers began a three-day public hearing on charges that four games played between Chicago and Detroit in the 1917 World Series were thrown to the White Sox. Why I bring it up? Uh, if you watch sports, you might be frustrated like I am to see just so how many ads were talking about betting and the lore and the amount of money. You know, there's always been the worry in sports that games would be fixed, games would be thrown. You know, it's maybe easier to throw a boxing match or a tennis match versus some team sports, but you know that there are nefarious gamblers that are in the ear of sport-related people, whether it be coaches or bosses, GMs or owners and players, to maybe get involved in doing something stupid. Okay, so it's winter time, and so we're going to have winter weather, including today. I don't know what the weather's going to be down the road, but the forecast has been bad enough, I suppose, to close the schools. So right now, it's certainly manageable to make your way around. It might be slippery, so watch your bobber. But the schools are closed here in Metro, all the way down to Buren, Bonavista, Grand Bank, Clarenville. So schools are closed today. I'm hearing from parents that when they sent their children back, even though many people didn't want to go back on Tuesday, but most working folk, we all went to work on Tuesday the 2nd, but sparsely populated classrooms consequently didn't start any new materials. So that's maybe two days lost already this week. And you know me, I'm a bit of a stickler on that kind of stuff. Anyway, hopefully the power stays on. And hopefully there's no big accidents. In the world of power. So you know me as faithful listeners to the program. I'm fascinated by the concept of 2041 and what it means. Now, PC leader Tony Wakem is calling for the Premier to make the status of the upper church on negotiations known publicly. Premier Fury says that's foolish. You know, he says either Wakem's out of touch or hasn't been paying attention. We know Francois Legault, the Premier of Quebec, has acknowledged that the Upper Churchill contract is a bad idea, or is a bad one. And we'll see. Now, I think it would be absolutely unwise to show our cards at this stage. We may, for the first time ever, hold the upper hand. If the deal's not a good one, they have to walk away from the table. But what has been done here in this province, there was a committee struck by the provincial government to look at what 2041 actually means. I would imagine if you got 10 people in a room and asked them all individually to write down what do you think 2041 means in terms of consequences, price, equity, and ownership, and whatever. You'd probably come up with 8 or 10 different understandings of it. So as much as we probably should not hear the details day-to-day, blow-by-blow of the negotiations, the province could, in an effort for us to be informed and able to give thumbs up, thumbs down, approval or disapproval of whatever end deal is reached, because if we don't know exactly what we're talking about, it's hard to say whether or not a deal is a good one or a bad one. And we deserve to have that type of input. The province absolutely politically and economically needs win on this front. So what is it? You know, many people think, uh, they believe, that in 2041 we own the whole kit and caboodle, which is simply not true. Hydro-Quebec maintains its equity stake, The issue will be about price per kilowatt hour. Currently, Hydro-Quebec buys the power at the Upper Churchill for 0.2 cents per kilowatt hour. They're stealing it. And that has an implication with equalization as well. But even though we don't necessarily need to hear what's going on behind closed doors, please, why not have Carl Smith or anyone on that committee tell us exactly what 2041 means. Paint the picture of what it's meant from 1969 to today and then what 2041 actually means with control, equity, money, and the rest. Because I think people are kind of confused about what that exactly means. All right, let's keep going. So yesterday, or it was one day this week anyway, 
had a caller concern with what we're talking about, the wind, to hydrogen, ammonia proposals. And yes, we still need to have firm regulations and a strict definition of what constitutes green for these proponents to access that very lucrative federal tax credit, the range between 15% and 40%. Lots yet to be understood on that front. There was a call talking about recycling. So for a long time now, wind turbines that have been uh, taken down have just been buried in landfills. And that's not green. When you talk about the whole concept of greening the electric grid, when you just bury stuff after it's uh, reached its best before date, that's hardly green. Now, they're working towards trying to find out ways to recycle, the, you know, shred the fiberglass, make cement and other hard plastics and what have you. Again, coming with some environmental concerns. But then there's a story that I just read from the island of Prince Edward. Prince Edward Island. So a consultant was hired back in 2022 to look at the production problems at a wind farm that the government of PEI actually owns found severe damage, and said the turbine blades were at a high risk of imminent failure. Again, not in an effort to scare people in the areas where there's going to be wind turbines, but we have to talk about the reality of what we've seen at other wind farms that are internationally being operated. So, now, high winds, which we will absolutely experience, maybe today, and certainly many times, we live in a very windy province, last month, extremely high winds ripped Two 56-meter blades off one of the turbines at the facility. Now, they've had a generation problem there for a while anyway. Electricity generation had fallen to 10% of design capacity by July of last year. Only four of the 10 turbines were operational, some running at reduced capacity because officials were concerned about damage. So, again, for context, two 56-meter blades were ripped off. The tallest building in PEI is in Charlottetown, and it's only 39 meters tall. So we're talking about some pretty enormous pieces of infrastructure. So between regulations, environmental concerns, recycling, the risk for some of these types of damages to happen because of high winds, which is absolutely part and parcel of operating here. Let's talk about it. All right, let's keep on with the grid. And that's one of the concerns people have is integration with these wind projects with our provincial grid. Newfoundland Labrador Hydro evaluating the potential of doubling in demand by 2050 and how we're going to accommodate. Then you look at some of the programs like oil to electricity for heating your home. People are concerned with the Newfoundland power bills that they've seen in recent past that are pretty big and coming as a bit of a shock to the system. Then you add in some of the mandates coming from the federal government, electric vehicles, for instance. So they're targeting the 2026 model year, required at least 20% of the new light-duty vehicles offered for sale in that year, they need to be EVs. The requirements increase annually to 60% by 2030 and 100% by 2035. Okay, you can buy one or, or not buy one. But if the government has their way, and the likelihood of government changing hands is very real, whether it be this time or in the future, and whether or not these policies become the reality down the road, we don't know. But let's just say they are. We spoke with Minister O'Regan on the show, I think it was before the holidays. And if the government is going to drive demand, whether it be based on immigration, which has an implication with housing, whether it be based on mandates for electric vehicles, then they absolutely inherit some of the responsibility for expansion of the grid and maintenance of the grid. It no longer becomes solely provincial responsibility if some of the demand is being driven directly by the federal government. So, the minister acknowledged that, yes, they may indeed have to play a role, but I'd go a step further and say you 100% have to play a role. So whether that be the removal of tariffs and provincial boundaries for the flow of power east to west, just like we do with oil pipelines and what have you. Whether it be the federal government with direct investment in provincial grids to uh, keep up with what they are forcing us to see an increase in demand. So that's a big one, and if you want to take it forward, we can do exactly that. 
All right, here's a case of some Captain Obvious stuff. We got a couple of those to go through. So a new study by the Canadian Automobile Association says that 88% of Canadians are concerned about speeding in residential areas. Of course, I wonder how that number is not 100. Anyway, one in five respondents admitted they're actually part of the problem and guilty of sometimes of speeding. Collisions make up uh, collisions due to speeding make up a quarter of fatal crashes in the country as uh, coming from the most recent federal government data. Research shows that driving even 10 kilometers over posted speed limits increases the risk of collision by 60%, and it only cuts four minutes off your commute. You know, if you live in and around the Northeast Avalon, reckless, aggressive driving is absolutely something that we see with great frequency. So further down inside this uh, survey, 45% admit to speeding on the highway, 32% they say they use a cell phone while driving, 18% of drivers admit to getting behind the wheel while extremely fatigued, and we've had that extreme fatigue story here lead to fatal crash on the highway. So 88% of Canadians are concerned about speed. Throw a little uh, additional layer to this one. I'd like to know the results of the pilot program with the speed cameras of Paradise and Mount Pearl. It's about time they compiled that data. It'd be nice to know exactly how, I'll call it, successful it was. And now inside that pilot program, which we hope can be expanded, I might be in the minority hoping for speed cameras, but I think they'll be helpful. And return on investment should happen pretty quick, given the nature of the motoring public here. And now the pilot also includes just a warning letter, you know, a little slap on the wrist versus a ticket in the mail. So when are we going to get to see that particular pilot program compilation of data released to the public? I'd be curious. All right, yesterday, which I always enjoy a passionate call, and I believe the, name is, uh, the gentleman's name was Pat. And he called from Labrador talking about the fixed link. Now, take this for what it's worth, Pat, and I enjoyed the conversation. Is basically accused me of using numbers that were provided by a consulting engineering company, Arup in this case, that updated Hatch's work from 2018, that puts the price tag pretty high. And double what, 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 what it once was, pardon me, in 2018. So with Marine Atlantic cancelling their crossing this evening, those are the type of examples people will use as for the need to connect Labrador to the island. Now we can get into the numbers, we can get into the hope for commercial and uh, vehicle traffic, but if you want to take it on, you know, spur it on by Marine Atlantic's uh, cancellation of their sailing this evening, we can do it. A couple of housekeeping items, and these are calls that we've entertained here on this program. The delivery of gas to Change Islands will resume. Very good news because that could be uh, an emergency issue without any gas on the island, and there was concerns about uh, how much gas could be transported via ferry. So the gas delivery by Ultramar will now resume, not coming from Fogo, but coming from Lewisport. So that's good news for the folks there. We also had a call from a concerned resident in Carbonaire about the temporary dump that been has, had been established. Now that's been cleaned up. So those couple of housekeeping notes, and I think on both fronts, good news. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? Let's get her going. little update on all the housing concerns we're talking about, and rightfully so. Just a couple of things. So whether it comes to the province's five-point plan, you know, removal of GST and whatnot, financing pro uh, low-interest financing program to help people get into their first home, crown land and what have you, which is obviously a big problem, and one that I think could be beneficial on two sides is for people who own their own home to be able to put in a secondary or basement suite. So that incentive inside of this pilot project, homeowners be able to access a forgivable loan of 50% of the cost of renovations, up to a maximum of $40,000 over the course of five years. But here's what's probably not being included wide and far into the evaluation of the housing market and the need out there. So the normal housing churn has stalled in part because the cost of getting into a new home is really expensive and mortgage rates, of course, are quite high at this moment in time compared to what they were, say, in 2019. So add to it 
A report of that's now come from the Canadian uh, Mortgage and Housing Corporation looking at the housing churn specifically as it pertains to seniors. There has been a trend since 2016 to see seniors staying in their home longer, maybe have healthier lifestyles and able to maintain their home with maintenance and all the rest of it. So again, how is that being considered? Because, and I think it's a good idea if seniors are able to stay happy and healthy and safe in their own home, close by their familiar neighborhoods, their family and friends, versus being institutionalized in a long-term care facility. But how do you factor that into the housing issue? Because the trend is quite real. Since 2016, there's been a 6% change in how many seniors between the ages of 75 and 90 are selling. Seniors are staying in their home into their 90s. So, and good for them. But I only bring it up because it's not only interesting, but it absolutely brings upon a further wrinkle or layer to the housing issue that the country is facing. All right, last one before we get to you. So I mentioned a couple of Captain Obvious comments uh, here this morning. And so this one is coming from Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne. And guess what he has told us? Canadians are paying too much for telecom services. <laughs> Thanks for that, sir. Yes, we are paying too much for telecom services. Inside the productivity issue that the country might be facing, we 100% have an issue regarding competition. And that's big in the telecom business. we got three big players, and they own all the infrastructure, the transmission towers, and they sell access to, to the small players who might be able to offer you a bit of a deal. So when we saw the Rogers-Shaw deal, which is a good example of the competitive problem that we have, the CRTC, they looked at it, and they said, okay, we'll allow the deal to go ahead. The federal government finally gave it a green light. And consequently, the only little piece of business insofar as competition was a splinter out part of Shaw's operations in Quebec. And did that do anything to enhance competition and maybe see a reduction in my bill? Of course it didn't. And Rogers at that time said, well, they're going to do whatever they can to ensure that their customers pay less. Now Rogers are talking about upping their rates for their non-contract members. Okay. And further to that, when you look at telecom prices around the country, and, of course, it's a competitive issue. We have a competition issue, whether it be in groceries, telecom, insurance, and banking. So this is the average price of one gigabyte in U.S. dollars. In the United States, they pay a huge sum, $6 per gigabyte. In Canada, $5.37. And here's where it gets interesting. Japan, $3.48. Germany, $2.14. The United Kingdom, $0.62 cents per one gigabyte. France, $0.20. Cents. Italy, $0.08. Cents. Canada, $5.37. Something's broken. We're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to wrap up the week that requires you in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, line number two. Dave. Hello. Hello. Hi. Patty, I'm just wondering why, um, you know, uh, Her Majesty's Penitentiary, okay? Why is it still called Her Majesty's Penitentiary? Like, it was built back when, in the 1800s, great. Now we're not under British, you know, the Commonwealth. And why, you know, when they come, or when they used to come, you know, we would treat them to everything. They they went all the other pla- all the places around, you know, and uh, but they never took a look down at Her Majesty's Penitentiary. 
Yeah. So construction in 1859, you know, Victorian area, it was very common for members of the Commonwealth to name things like prisons and other pieces of infrastructure and events after the monarchy. What I thought was interesting, is, and I was wondering whether or not it would happen, after the death of the Queen, I was wondering whether or not we're all of a sudden going to call it Her, Her Majesty's Penitentiary in reference to King Charles. I thought there might be some changes coming there, and thankfully not, because that would have been foolish. So I don't know yeah. why it remains that way, but just think about it. Right outside the walls of the Her Majesty's Penitentiary is also the Royal St. John's Regatta. So those designations have been deemed to be pretty important and for different events and pieces of infrastructure across the country. So uh, do you think they should change it just because? I just think, yeah, they should change it because, you know, the royals used to come here, like I say, and, you know, uh, they would never go down there and acknowledge anything like, you know, the state of the place, for one thing, and they should be ashamed of themselves <laughs> well. to come here and visit, I think, you know, and not go down and take a look at the state of that place. I'd be hard-pressed to be able to picture Kate Middleton taking a tour of the oldest block of that penitentiary. It's a real dungeon, and, and it's got to go. But it's an interesting question. But I think, you know, there's lots of references to the, to, uh, the monarchy in the country. Even some uh, military battalions, in the Royal Canadian Forces are named after uh, members of the royalty of the monarchy. So I don't know why they didn't change it, but at this point, I think we're better served by knocking it down than we are with worried about the name. Uh, yeah, that's the truth. Yeah, but I'd like to see it called something else. I like. <laughs> anyway, that's just my opinion. Well, I appreciate you sharing it on the show. Thanks for the call. All right. Bye bye. Take, take Thank care. you. You're welcome. Bye bye. And of course. You know, after the uh, Kingston Penitentiary in Ontario closed, and I think that was maybe about a decade ago, this is far and wide the oldest penitentiary in the country, and we know just how awful it is. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Excellent. How are you doing? Not too bad. I uh, I was listening to the history of the old Christmas Day. That was pretty interesting. Oh, good. <laughs> Thanks. I thought yeah. it was interesting, too. I never knew that significance. Yeah, imagine the change in the calendar by a full 11 days in 1752. Know, eh? Pretty cool. Yeah, well, I suppose every origin has a history, eh? Absolutely right. Anyways, uh, Patty, the reason why I called you, I'm second year uh, rabbit harvesting this year. Yeah. And I'm kind of uh, really dismayed and upset of what I'm seeing in the, in the bush. What are you seeing? I seen a rabbit the other day going by with a with a wire on his neck, and I found one dead. I'm not sure what genius uh, passed this law to you have us use this uh, wire that they know is not going to hold the rabbit. So it used to be that the people were allowed to use stainless steel wire, and of course yeah. that was deemed that was banned quite a long time ago. Now, so the this is just that uh, six strand something like you'd see hanging a picture, right? Yeah. And there's also, I can't remember the gauge, but there's also brass wire that's allowed to be used, maybe 20 or 22 gauge. I can't remember that number. Okay. Because uh, I think it's really immoral that it's happening because, uh, you know, it's one thing to uh, have us re- to use a wire that's required that they know is not going to hold, but then give us the privilege to go and do it. The only privilege they're giving us, Patty, from what I see is uh, to put wire around rabbits' necks. Snaring is a, you know, I'm not going to say it's questionable, but it's certainly a tough way to go. So do you think it might be a case of a snare being set 
incorrectly or possibly someone not checking their snares frequently enough? Well, it, that could be a contributing factor, but I don't know if that holds a lot of weight or not. Right? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. Just put it out there. You know, like, uh, say, for example, they, 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 would, they could tell us that uh, the moose harvest of 2024 is going to happen, but the difference is this year you got to use a 22. It's the same, it's the same uh, significance. So I'm hoping whoever is listening that has some authority in this matter to maybe either shut the season down completely and let the pine marten stocks uh, replenish and then as a method of control, let us come back again uh, uh, snaring with the proper wire that's going to hold the rabbit. Like, uh, it, it's, it just puzzles me to no end, right? How are you doing on the rabbits? Uh, I'm doing all right. I haven't lost any yet, so. But, I mean, I haven't gotten any big rabbits either. Like, the small rabbits, these, this wire will hold. But the big ones, it's not happening. It's just too much too much lower center of gravity and too much power, right? Well, if other rabbit hunters are using snares would like to chime in on this one, what they see in the appropriate gauge of wire that should be used, and I'm pretty sure now the allowable gauge is 22 on the brass wire, but you can use that old pitcher cord as well? Yeah. Yeah, like I know the stuff you buy at the store. You, you can let her t- take it and break it like thread. But and then the the rabbits like is is there proof that the the rabbit's going to shed this wire, or is he going to starve to death? Well, if it's around his neck, it's probably going to stay there till the rabbit perishes. I would think. Yeah, exactly. You know, like uh, I don't know. It just baffles me to no extent. Uh, all the years that I've spent in the bush, I've seen one pine marten. I mean, that's why the whole legislation was put in place to can to uh, reserve their their population, right? And there's not many pine martin around. I think uh, for to catch a pine martin in a snare is 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 equally as easy as uh, catching a uh, uh, squirrel. <laughs> I don't know. So I don't know. Is there somewhere that I can uh, start a petition and maybe have signatures? And where would I mail my petition and when complete it? I guess you could send it right into the Department of Wildlife. Those would be the, that would be the entity setting the rules and regulations for all the hunts. Right now, sounds good. I know that a lot of people are out there listening and saying, yeah, it's about time somebody addressed this. Well, I'd also suggest, you know, there's lots of outdoor activists or advocacy groups, like, for instance, Barry Fordham, who joins us for, uh, fairly frequently here on the show. He might be able to point you in the right direction for how to set up that kind of stuff because he's been working on issues similar to that for a long time. He's with a group called Sharing the Harvest. You can probably find him on Facebook if you just look up either Barry Fordham uh, and or Sharing the Harvest. You can probably find him there. And if you, if you want to send me an email, I'll be able to find Barry's email for you, and I'll, I'll forward that along. Uh, uh, Barry Fordham? Yep. F-O-R-D-H-A-M. H-A-M. Yep. All right. Uh, okay, I'll start my uh, my inquiry there, I guess, to say the least. I appreciate the time, and if you want Barry's email address, you send me one, and I'll forward it along to you. I'm sure he doesn't mind me sharing. It sounds good. And, Patty, take care, and all the best in 24. You too, John. Thanks for the call. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, so if anyone wants to chime in that knows more about it, then please do exactly that. I personally have never set a snare and caught a rabbit like that, but if you want to have that conversation, let's do it. Inside the world of pine martens, there's very few left here in the province. I mean, it used to be that they were really quite populous, but now 
I don't think there's that many around at all. And I think there's only a couple of pockets of the province where you'll see the blind barn. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Paul's in the queue to talk about ride sharing, which I, mean, I guess means talk about the potential for Uber to come to town. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind today. Thanks. How are you doing? Not too bad at all. Happy New Year, too. Happy New Year. Right on. Patty, uh, <clears throat> just over Christmas holidays there, I worked on a, on a local taxi driver. Yep. And it was very slow and everything, of course, but uh, I guess the economy, it'll tell tell the way it is. Nobody's spending any of their money. <clears throat> but I was looking into this uh, ride-sharing program, and I guess the government has announced that uh, you pay a $60 fee, and you can apply, you know, you can, you can get an application to apply to operate a ride-sharing company. So when I was looking into it, I looked at other provinces and stuff like that, done a bit of investigating, I suppose you can call it, so over Christmas on December 24th, just tell you what kind of, you know, if they're planning on bringing Uber here, and I'm not, you know, I'm not picking on them in general, but it seems that Fury was Uber excited to bring them here, you know. So in Atlanta, Georgia, on Christmas Eve, uh, Uber had increased all their ride rates to the customers that were phoning Uber. They increased up to 50 to 80% of what their take was from the drivers, so there was over 150 drivers that shut their apps off at the airport and left uh, customers stranded. Okay. So, I mean, we've had concerns here. And look, I, as someone who's trying to support local whenever possible, I totally get the concerns that you and others who are cabbies and or own these operations will have about the potential for ride sharing because it's popular. You know, I admit when I travel and I have to leave the province next week for a couple of days, I use Uber. But and if and when it comes to town, it will be popular, and that's going to be a problem for you and others like you. But when you talk about things like stranded at the airport, we've also had times here where having a local cab company presence at the airport has been questionable, and people are struggling to try to get a ride from the airport with a local taxi. Yeah, but Patty, now that was that was true over over COVID too, right? You got to you got to admit that that was during COVID, and the government that's the government's fault again because they were giving everybody two thousand dollars for free, whether you needed it or not. Yeah, if right. you if you lost your job or lost hours, you're right. That's right. Okay, That's right. but I, I worked right through COVID. I went around for twelve hours a day with a mask on because we were considered an essential service, as far as I'm concerned. Because you had all the PCAs, the nurses, the doctors, the people who had to work had to get to and from work. Yeah, which a lot of them here now in Newfoundland are uh, new Canadians and they don't have any transportation. Yeah, there are, a lot of them are, is the reason we see the big spike in ridership on Metrobus. So, Paul, oh, yeah, for sure. Just for, for sure. clarification. When you mention the numbers at, at in Atlanta on Christmas Eve, what's the point that you're making? Is that they're unreliable because it's up to them? It's at their whim as to whether or not they're working? No, no, no. Is that is that the Uber company itself? Uber in general, not not the drivers. They they increased their they increased their rates to to the to the customers, the people that had, had booked their booked their rides, and then they turned around and took up to fifty to eighty percent from the drivers, whereas it was only supposed to be thirty or thirty-five percent. Okay. So there was, a, and you can Google it. It's a, it's a, a Hartsfield Jacksonville Airport in in Atlanta. There was over one hundred fifty drivers shut. Well, they never shut the airport down, but they had a mass confusion there because 
people already had their rides booked. Like, so if you're going, you're saying the next week or next two weeks, you'll probably pre-book your cabs or, or your or your Ubers or whatever you're going to do, right? Yeah, I suppose. I just uh, hail one when I, you know, land at whatever, mm -hmm. whatever airport. So, uh, again, I just want to make sure I'm understanding here. So Uber jacked up the rates, which is a pretty normal co course of business for Uber. They know when to spike the, the real high, high volume times are, and they do indeed raise their rates. People need to be aware of that. But did you also say they turned off the app? No, Uber didn't. The drivers did. Because the drivers, they were, the Uber took 50 to 80% of the ride. Oh, because of the take. There, there was, yeah, of the take. There was one lady there, and for instance, they interviewed her. A lot of them didn't want to go on camera because they were afraid of their jobs. One lady went on, didn't care about it. She had a $102 ride from Atlanta Airport to wherever she was going. So her take out of that should have been about 70 bucks, right? Uber, the company, took 80% and gave her $20 for the ride, and she had a $5 tip that was been built in, so she got paid $25, so she shut her app off. Fair enough. And didn't do the, and didn't do the ride. So, you know, <clears throat> what my, my thing is, these guys are allowed to do this, right? And it's a company that you know and I know. I've lived in other provinces and, and so have yourself. They've got issues all over the place like i can give you a couple more examples before i go here and i won't i won't try to take up too much of your time in ottawa right now there's a 200 million dollar class action suit against the city there's four brokers and over 700 plate owners that are saying that the city abandoned the taxi industry and when they took over on so this has been in court since 2016 and it's been going on now they changed the rules to accommodate the ride sharing and like so those plate owners a lot of them played paid anywhere between 30 to fifty thousand dollars to get a taxi license and the brokers themselves now that's ongoing that's in the news that's that's online anybody can look it up in sarnia ontario uh city hall are investigating now because there's a lot of uber drivers in and around sarnia that were reported with no criminal background checks and i know we talked before you said ics or ico or something are doing them for uber but these guys that they've looked into, the police have they've done police checks on them. They've they've had criminal records, and this is in Sarnia, Ontario. Now David Bradley is a, is a, is the mayor there of the city. He's investigating it, and he's thinking about shutting Uber down. <clears throat> in Winnipeg, there's 580 cabs there. In 2020, they introduced ride sharing. There's 2,053 ride sharing cars available in Winnipeg right now. Now, like, how do you regulated right so duffy and unicity taxi companies are losing 75 percent i talked to them there They're, they never went to the like the news or after trying to get an interview with them they haven't done anything they're pending a lawsuit because they're down 75 percent and the drivers that they do have are leaving the industry because they can't support their families and you talk about getting at the cost of getting into the taxi business. I just happened to see this uh, a couple of days ago. A taxi medallion in New York City is one hundred forty-five thousand dollars. Well, and that's another one that they're also in New York. Like, I'm more concerned about about Canada in in general. I'm more concerned about Newfoundland. Well, of course, all, of course, you are. It's all bad enough here as it is, right? You talk about the Liberal government or the Team Fury, whatever he wants to call themselves. The HMP is in trouble. The fisheries is in trouble, housing is in trouble, healthcare, childcare, teachers, Memorial University, they got the air ambulance all bottom up, 
homelessness, and nurses, right? And then, like with HMP, they were supposed to do something for the boys down there to try to help them out. And I know there are no roses down there and everything else, right? I mean, they're in there for a reason. But they need rehabilitation, right? And John Abbott is the infrastructure minister, I guess. And he said they don't have the budget to build a new prison right now. Wasn't he the one two years ago on TV said he eats budgets for breakfast? Yeah, I mean, some of those yeah. flipping comments come back to bite them. It's just so silly that they can't, they don't realize what they're saying is going to be hang over their head because it's there forever digitally. Yeah, and not only that, then you got them subsidizing WestJet for flights from the UK, and it's pretty coincidental that they all of a sudden are doing that and the UK are interested in their win, right? So let's subsidize the flight so those business people can get back and forth. And yeah, they might bring a few more tours, but those tours that's, that are coming, they're going to be jumping in Ubers and they're going to all be looking, overlooking me and my buddies that, that drive that drive taxis, right? Because that's what they do in their country in the UK. You know it yourself, right? Well, as a matter of fact, what's more, more popular than anything in the UK or across Europe is public transit, subways and buses. Right. They're blocked. That's right. I mean, yeah. Well, Paddy, you lived in, you lived in Alberta and so did I. I did, you yeah. can jump on a C train in Calgary and be downtown to a football game or a hockey game in any time. Yep. Right? It's the only way to go. To do. Yeah, well, especially if you had a couple of wobbly pops, right? Fair enough. I, yeah. You wouldn't drive to any yeah. of those events because, for, for starters, no, no, parking's right. a problem. That's right, yeah. But, Paddy, right, another thing about, about this WestJet thing too, right? Last one. I right. think the WestJet uh, play is a solid one, personally. I know I'm in the okay, minority. Yeah, yeah and, and everybody's got their opinions. Okay, sure. and I agree with this. Now. Let's probably bring some more people. This is my last one. So... All the people from Lab City and, and the Inuit people and all that, right? Why can't they subsidize their flights for medical medical reasons? There, while there are subsidies for medical travel, it's probably not enough to satisfy the real need in Labrador. And believe it or not, some of the uh, interprovincial travel via air, PAL and others, are subsidized as well. To what extent? It's hard to get a number. But all these things do have some level of subsidy. Now, we don't even know how much the uh, WestJet flight will be subsidized. It's all going to be based on uh, passenger traffic volume. There hasn't been a dollar spent on it yet. So the entire subsidy from the provincial government to every airport in the province is $3.75 million. How much of that goes towards this particular flight, this direct route to, uh, uh, to London's Gatwick? I'm not really sure. But the whole play for the entire fiscal year is less than $4 million for airports. Yeah, yeah. But, but Patty, this, this is the last note here, right? Okay. All those, all, all those things that I mentioned, like HMP, fisheries, housing, healthcare, and all that. The, the government got to realize, right? And and now you're adding the taxi industry to it, right? We all got families. We're all trying to support everything. Like we're, we know, don't sell, don't sell us out to companies outside. Like you know, like the healthcare has gone outside. The virtual care has gone to the states. Uber's from the states, right? Like, you know, if they're trying to fix things, fix them. Right. And you got to remember, every one of these people that work in these industries have families and every one of those family members are voters. So I don't know why he thinks they're going to get, get in next go around when, when they're doing all this to everybody. Because there's, right? there's a political calculation here. If we're just talking about Uber and taxis, the people want Uber. People want ride sharing to come to town. I, I think it's a really popular idea. And consequently, when politicians, you know, stick their finger in their mouth and put it up to see which way the wind's blowing, in this case, it really does feel like people want ride sharing. And so they know that you're a voter, your family are voters, but then how do you add up to the rest of the general public who want something? And in this case, I think the public does want Uber to come to town. Whether or not they've thought it through with the implication on the local cabbies, the local cab companies, 
that's I don't know how people factor all these things in, but people want ride sharing, whether that's well, good, bad, or different. That's what that's what, what's going on. NTV did the survey on TV, and I've seen it personally, and it was eighty percent of the people that didn't want ride sharing, and and the people in Newfoundland got to realize. This all got to be paid for up front. And like those people at the Atlanta airport, they had their cabs or, or their Ubers or a ride train, whatever you want to call it, prepaid on their visa cards like you're going to do when you go away. Then you got to fire it around when your ride don't show up and you turn the app off to try to get your money back. Whereas here, you can phone the taxi stand and cancel it. There's no fee. There's no service charges. There's no nothing. Or you can go in on the app, just like Uber, and book your cab. No Paul, difference. I wish you well. I appreciate the time. And... Uh... Have a nice day. Dan, you as well, Patty. Take care. Thanks, Thanks for your time. No problem. Bye-bye. All right, let's get another break. When we come back, Backyard Gardens. All right, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. A couple of things. So we were talking about rabbit snares and, of course, Pine Martin. And it was once actually labeled as endangered. And apparently there's some sort of comeback for the Pine Martin. Good news. I don't know what the most recent numbers look like, but obviously that's a good thing. And I will say, I don't know who Paul, the taxi driver who just called, I don't know who he drives for. And I didn't want to throw this out there in case it was kind of X thrown it in his face. But if anyone's used the Jiffy app that's in play for the Jiffy cab company, it works pretty great. I'll have to say that I used it and I thought it was absolutely perfect. So anyway, I'll just put that out there for local context. Let's go to line number four. Charlie, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning. Happy New Year. You sound like you're, you've got your batteries recharged. I can hear that, that, that energy in your voice again. Well, I've, I'm a pretty good actor. <laughs> no, I, I'm feeling good, and I appreciate it, Charlie. And Happy New Year to you. Yes, thank you. I want to speak about uh, backyard gardens. Okay. This is a New Year's resolution for, for towns, I'll call it. The success of community gardens has been great, as you know. Uh, just about every uh, town now of any size has, has a, one or two of these, right? I would like to uh, suggest something else. So governments, uh, they're in there to help people. And uh, when we look at the cost of food, uh, what, I, what I'm proposing is this for, for councils, uh, especially in rural areas, to think about. The hardest part for starting a garden is uh, digging it up, getting it prepared, uh, to saw it off and uh, that kind of thing, right? If councils, you'd have to do it, I guess, by applications to them, uh, add some money took some of the resources, and I think the provincial government should back this up as well uh, in financing it. If they had, uh, could help people who are interested, and I, I submit that there would be a lot of people uh, that, that are retired in that and uh, would love to start their own gardens, uh, they could assist so many each year to dig up a back garden or a plot nearby and uh, with volunteers to, to help people along to get them started in that. I think this would be a great way to help people with the bills to uh, fresh food supply and uh, uh, just just to get out of the house and that. Uh, what what would you think of, a, of, of, of an initiative? I'll call it the BGI, the Backyard Garden Initiative for 2024. It would simply be an extension of what the provincial government is already doing. So I'll just try to recall exactly what this is, but... There's a $750 per applicant 
non-repayable grant available to if you're a not-for-profit a municipality, local school district, or a school, or a community group, or an organization. So you can, there is that program that's already in place. I don't know if you can come together and call yourself a group like, for instance, if they simply say community group, and we have 12 like-minded people in one community that says, let's start a community group that's focusing on backyard gardening, you might be able to avail of it simply by doing that. Yes. Well, I'd like to see that, uh, that that started. I know the interest is out there, and I know a lot of people would love to get into gardening. Some of them go to, to, to community gardens, but that the space is taken up fairly quickly. Uh, I think it would be fairly inexpensive, and uh, just think of... Uh, of, 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 of all the pleasure that would provide us. An old saying, if you, if, if you want to be happy, get drunk for a day. If you want to be happy for a month, get married. If you want to be happy for a lifetime, grow a garden, right? You've heard that before, I'm sure. I have. When we, had, when we lived in Alberta and, ha- Alberta and actually had this physical space, we had a lovely little backyard garden going, and I loved it. I, my mother's father and mother were farmers, so we were around farming growing up. And, uh, yeah, it's a great idea. Look, anything we can do uh, to improve access to healthy foods, because proximity is a concern, it's not just price point, and, yes, it would help the pocketbook. The municipal governments really have to update and modernize the bylaws they use to talk about backyard gardening and or homesteading, because we're using stuff that's from the British government. It's maybe a century old, and it's kind of backward thinking. It doesn't acknowledge the realities of the day. It's not to say that we should have, you know, throw caution to the wind and everyone's got a rooster and, you know, got cows in the backyard. No, 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 no. We're talking about legitimate, fundamental operations to feed your family at a low yeah. cost. And you're right. The startup energy and effort is significant. Uh, and even if you are a community group established by a group of seniors, you still will need to use some of that money to get someone to come in and help you very likely because even just to till up fresh earth, to make it proper and appropriate for gardening is a pretty big load of elbow grease required. Yes, and and and, and that's what prevents a lot of people, uh, especially seniors, from uh, from doing that. And they, you would get volunteers, uh, people who are into gardening already, that that would be glad to go to 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 places and help help people establish that. You know, so I call on councils for a New Year's resolution. Uh, what better could you do for people than help them establish their own garden? Anyway. Fair enough. The other thing I want to speak about was uh, space junk. Okay. <laughs> it came, something came to, uh, there was a story on about a woman who was interested in, in, in UFOs and uh, space tra- travel and so on. And when she died in her will, she wanted her ashes to be, to be sprinkled in space. I thought that was a, a pretty good and a pretty good idea, and a family uh, decided they would do that. One of these uh, space tourism things. But it got me thinking about space and junk, and I've heard this story before. It seems like everything mankind touches, we kind of uh, pollute. And uh, if you look at our atmosphere, what's happening there with with uh, greenhouse gases, and you look at the oceans. And, and and land and and whatever it's uh, we're we're uh, creating uh, 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 junkyards just about every uh, living system, and we're now doing it in space. I'll just give you a couple of figures there. Uh, since the the, the, the the rocket launches have started, there's approximately over sixty three hundred have been launched. Now the main problem in space is, 
and they talked about the numbers of, of, of uh, space uh, debris pieces that are out there. And you're talking about hundreds of thousands. And some of them are, are only the size of a little tiny piece of metal uh, as big as a, a top of a needle or a fleck of paint. But these things are traveling at, at faster than the speed of a bullet, and when they hit something, like like another space station or a satellite, there's just an, an enormous amount of destruction. There was one example they gave in 2009. Two satellites crashed in, in, in this particular case, going at 41,000 miles an hour. They left over 2,000 pieces of space junk uh, 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 after that crash. So it seems like to me... Uh, well, going pell-mell, every country you can think of, and every large country is uh, launching satellites, communication satellites, and so on. So it looks like we're, uh, we're making space, as we've done on Earth, uh, uh, unsustainable. We've been doing it for quite a while. And we, yes. Space proliferation. Based on applications, construction of uh, satellites at this moment in time, the number that I've seen on that front is by 2030. There's going to be 75,000 sp- uh, satellites are orbiting Earth. 75,000. Oh, God. Yeah? Wow. Yeah, that was a number I read from NASA. Well, that's, that, that makes what I, I reported there. Up to the, that makes that look uh, sick. I, I can't imagine that. 75,000 satellites orbiting. And, of course, there's some up there that are orbiting no longer even being used. They are simply the, the, the definition of space junk. Yeah. Well... I can see it, uh, 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 to, to, to me, to go up there and get it with, because uh, 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 the main problem, as I said, is the ones they can see, the, the tiny pieces, and there's literally millions of them. I don't know how safe it is to travel up there anymore, or uh, imagine those hitting uh, communication satellites as well. But anyway, I just thought I'd mention it, because it seems like we're like cockroaches, uh, people on Earth, with just too many of us, and we just... Uh, <laughs> We, as I said, we, uh, we destroy and pollute everything we touch. But anyway, I'll leave it at that. I appreciate the time, Charlie. Okay, sir. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, so just uh, given this piece of information via email. Okay. So Leo Kilty. People know Leo if you listen to this program. Leo, I know he's listening because he sent me an email a little while ago. He's the 89th birthday today. So we're happy to give Leo a very happy birthday here. 89 years old today, Leo Quilty. We appreciate your call and hope you have a fantastic day today. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Well, I guess it was Tuesday. We had a call from a gentleman named Larry who lives on Change Islands. Talk about the fact that there hadn't been gas delivery to the island in quite a long time. So through the jigs and the reels, it looks like now gas delivery will resume. Join us on line number one is the mayor of Change Islands. That's Paula Flood. Good morning, Mayor Flood. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So obviously yourself and your residents are breathing a sigh of relief because gas is essential. How did it work out that the deliveries will resume? Well, it took a little bit of um, lobbying, and um, we uh, worked with the Premier's office in emergency response. Um, then they ferry to get uh, it ran Ultramar to get it uh, to get it uh, arranged. So, how is it that it's coming from Lewisport now versus Fogo Island, where it was once coming from? Is it simply because the delivery guy has retired? That is the reason. Yeah, and and. Uh, it worked out better with the ferry when it was coming from Fogo uh, because, uh, of course, everything here depends on the ferry and dangerous goods. 
And dangerous goods day means reduced travel uh, for passengers, only 25 passengers allowed on the ferry, that sort of thing. So um, doing a delivery now from Lewisport means um, that, you know, you have, we have to um, accom- accommodate it because if not, the truck is, truck is just tied up here all day waiting at the dock to go back. So it's, um, you know, a little bit of a problem for them. So does anything actually change versus where the gas is coming from? Uh, the Yes, because Fogo had, had their own tanks and stuff over there when they did the delivery. Okay. But no, so it's actually coming from the Lewisport area now, but still from Ultramar. You know, people might think, you know, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. But what were your general concerns? Because, of course, it's an inconvenience to have to travel via ferry to fill up your rig or to bring gas home for your generator or what have you. But what were your distinct concerns as the municipal leader? Well, it would be the emergency response because we have a patient transport unit that runs on gasoline and uh, that needs to be kept uh, full. Um, we have a lot of power outages here and when the ferry can't run in storms, we could be out as high as five days or longer. We, we've had that happen. So people depend on their home generators uh, to you know, keep warm and be able to cook food, that sort of thing. Um, so for me, it was definitely... Uh, the emergency response part of it. Also, with um, the um, Transport Canada on the ferry, you are only allowed to transport a certain amount of uh, personal gas, a gas can or whatever. So it would not be, uh, we would not be able to keep up with the needs of the gas for even personal use uh, by carrying it back and forth on the ferry. And uh, if you can imagine putting your groceries in the back with your gas can, you know, it's, it's just it's just not a workable thing, right? Absolutely not. You know, we're talking about some communities that have lost some amenities like a bank. And so when people travel to do their banking, they're likely to do some shopping. So in conversation with Alba Diamond, who runs D&E Variety, is her business way down because people were going to get gas and consequently buying some stuff that she also sells? Uh, I haven't spoken with Alba exactly on that part of it, but... Um, the uh, the store here provides pretty much everything that we need. And yes, people do shop off the island. And people do buy gas off the island, you know, when they're they're coming back and forth. But they, you know, their business is essential to change islands. And right now, uh, we're down to one store. There were two stores uh, up until about um, a well last last fall. So um, you know, it's it's a vital part of our community. You know, this is a tough question, but we're going to have these tough conversations in years to come. You know, with small communities, I think I read there's 175 residents of Change Islands, and, you know, the inability for a whole lot of real regional cooperation, given the fact that you're isolated, you're on an island. You know, does the conversation happen in your community about what the future looks like and whether or not people would like to entertain that so-called relocation conversation? Um, I have not been having conversations on relocation um, my goal is to revitalize the tourism. We have the fishery here. It's it's uh, a beautiful, lovely place to live with a good quality of lifestyle. We have a school. We have a library. We have a store. We need a nurse. Our nurse is not here anymore, and we're we're lobbying for that now um, because we run on first responders, which are all volunteers. And uh, you know, for us to get off the island in medical emergency. Is, um, is quite an ordeal. And uh, last year, I think we responded to 38 that we took off the island. So, you know, there, there are more issues. But I guess no matter where you live, people have um, 
have uh, what they some people would consider not ideal. But no, I, I'm not entertaining those ideas as a means of leader. Are there many young families on Change Islands? No, our school's currently down to I think six kids in the in the community. Uh, it would be a beautiful place for people to move uh, with families, depending on um, you know what jobs that could be available. But like people that work from home and uh, internet, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, it's a very quiet, nice place to raise your children with um, a really good school. school there. So, Mayor Flood, what does connectivity look like and access to high-speed broadband? Do you have it? Um, well, a lot of us have Starlink. We do have um, Bell. Um, most okay. people who work, work from home use Starlink. Um, I, ha- I have it myself because I work from home, and I have no issues with And most of my work is online. Um, so there, you know that that is there, but no cell service like like a lot of the coastal communities and I mean yourself even like you leave St John's you got dead spots on the highway coming out so cell service is what it is. Um, I, it needs improvement province wide. No question. There are tons of dead spots, and now the province is working with the big three providers to try to figure out how to uh, address that particular concern. Uh, Mayor Flood, anything else you'd like to tell us about Change Islands or anything else you'd like to discuss this morning? Um, I hope that a lot of people are hearing this and would choose this as part of their vacation next year to come and see um, and experience uh, island life here. Do you have tourism offerings like any businesses working inside tourism? Uh, we have some Airbnbs, and uh, we have an interpretation center. Our geology is second to none here. Um, we're part of the uh, geology program that Shorefast does with Fogo Island. Okay. And uh, our hiking trails um, are, um, are, again, second to none. We have Newfoundland Pony Sanctuary here. We have museums. Um, there are lots of uh, opportunities here for business, for tourism as well. Mayor Flood, I appreciate the time this morning, and we're pleased to hear that the delivery of gas will resume next week. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Paula Flood. The mayor of Change Island is making the tourism pitch, and you know, I appreciate when people mention the Shorefast Foundation. It's important, and it's not the only one of its kind here in the province, you know, with community leaders and uh, community like-minded folks who want to come together and look towards a viable, prosperous future for the uh, for their community and or their region. And you don't need to have, uh, certainly it's helpful to have someone like Zeta Cobb in your corner as part of the foundation, but you would think that there's an opportunity to mimic what they're doing. You know, take best practices from what the Shorefast Foundation is able to accomplish. Again, it would be nice to have the horsepower of a multimillionaire, but it's not necessarily required. There's other groups working on similar issues, you know, up and down the Bonavista Peninsula where they seem to be doing a pretty good job. So you wonder what role people like that will play, because... Oftentimes, we look up and we rely on municipal government. We look up and rely on the provincial government. We look to the federal government, when in fact there's lots people could do inside their own community with their own energy and ideas, and of course the passion for where they live. So let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Jim's in the queue to talk about some of the mail service concerns. Don't go away. And now welcome back to the show. I can't even figure out the new bumper series. Does that one only happen at the, uh, after the quarter hour break, Dave? Okay. <laughs> you think I know, but hey, bye. Line number two, Jim, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. And Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. Yeah, I don't understand uh, Amazon or other companies why it will take so long uh, to send stuff down this province here. Because, uh, my God, I, I'm at to send my uh, online, somebody sent online, he's, uh, 
it's like a, not like a t-shirt was it like long sleeve uh, like Detroit Red Wings you know what I mean I'm sorry what are we talking about you ordered a Detroit Red Wings sweater uh, not a heavy one you know it was like a like, something like a t-shirt but they got long sleeves into it right uh, okay yeah and here there's a couple months ago here is not here right here on, on the on here yet so I don't know what's be the problem with them companies here they're collecting all these kinds of money from people all across Canada uh, and I think we're the last ones to uh, wait so long to get these a lot of stuff is that eating all year long look I don't understand what's the excuse is why are they taking so long who's they Amazon or, or, or Amazon. That's or usually any, any company at all. I'll tell you the truth. So uh, here you got the airplanes, you got the ferries. Alex, and I think I should get that press a long time ago. You shouldn't. Well, I know it's coming from the United States. I suppose to do, but uh, still no excuses though. So you say you've been waiting two months for an Amazon package? A couple months ago. Really? There must be something, uh, some glitch in that matrix because. You know, as much as I think Amazon has taken over a bit too much, they're pretty reliable and pretty quick turnaround. Well, well I'll tell you something now. I'll okay. tell you the truth now. Uh, we ordered that now the summary for the play for the hockey star at NHL, but they were, they, were on, they were putting them on sale, right, for $100? Okay. So anyway, it's still now, it's just not, not the point, though. Why do it take so long to, to be here, you know? I, I don't know. I haven't had that type of experience with Amazon in particular. They've been now. I'll have, I'll admit I've never personally ordered anything from it, but my wife and my children do, and uh, seems to turn around pretty quickly. But it's too bad that you're waiting that long for just one hockey shirt. Yeah, hopefully it gets it pretty soon because I like I don't care as long as it gets it. But my God, uh, I say if I don't get it this year, just just want to not get it all right. <laughs> Cancel it. It's shocking, shocking what they're doing. You know, like, uh, I come remember around your program a couple of years ago, a woman phoned in, and she'd done the same thing, so she, she canceled her order and from Amazon, and she ended up buying her stuff over St. John's, Christmas stuff, right? Okay. A couple of years ago, I don't know her name, but anyways, uh, said he got smartened up by these companies that, you know, uh, do they want the money so bad, I wonder? Well, uh, the short answer to that is uh, yes, very likely they want the money. I think that's what they're all about. Uh, are you a long-time uh, Detroit fan? Oh, yes, a long time ago, yeah. Nice to see someone like Alex Debrinkat added to the lineup. He's pretty yeah. solid. Yeah, so we've got two new Flanders now in, in HL, haven't we? just signed two, right? Yeah, new hook and Mercer. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I must let you go in, Patty, and uh, take care of yourselves over there. Uh, same to you, man. Thanks for the call, Jim. Yeah, when I get, when I get there, I'll give you a call anyway. Look forward to it. Good enough. Okay, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. And, of course, also with the Detroit Red Wings, you know, that Debrinkat kid is pretty special. Comfort's a pretty great player. But now, all of a sudden, here comes Patrick Kane back to life. Dylan Larkin, throw him in there. Speedster Larkin is. And now Kane's starting to score just like he did when he was his old self. So the Red Wings are solid. Okay, let's see here. Oops, let me open this one. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the executive director at the Grace Sparks House. That is Lisa Slaney and wrong clicker. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Thanks for making time for the program. You're welcome. So let's talk about the Grace Sparks House and an investment of some $7.5 million to build a new shelter for women in Marystown. What's happening? just like winning the lotto. <laughs> we're, we're very excited um, about uh, the new build, and we're expecting to be in there in uh, about four months. Four months? So are we refurbishing or repurposing a building, or is this going to be a new build? 
No, this is a brand new building. Yep, and its uh, its design and vision uh, actually came from a lot of input from uh, the women and children that we've served over the past twenty three years in our in our current facility. Before we get to what the new shelter is going to look like, people might not be uh, familiar with Grace Sparks House. Who are you? What do you do? How many beds? Okay. That kind of stuff. Yep. So Grace Sparks House is a uh, shelter, emergency shelter for women and children who are at risk of violence or experiencing violence. Um, and we're, you know, we mainly service service the uh, Bjorn, uh, the Bjorn Peninsula region. However, you know, we do um, service the, the province as well as do the other ten shelters uh, across the province. And uh, we provide, you know, uh, safe uh, accommodations, the 24-hour uh, crisis line and, you know, programming and uh, support and housing options, things like that, legal support, educational support, anything that we can do. Lisa, you and I have talked many times in the past. We've unfortunately heard stories about shelters at capacity, not saying that they're turning people away, but they are full. What's it like at your yes. place? You know, we experience the same thing, and a lot of that, you know, boils down to um, the the lack of affordable housing and the lack of of housing that, uh, you know, is in the province. We have women that stay for, you know, longer periods of time, and, uh, you know, that's just the reality of of, uh, not just, you know, for Grace Sparks House or Newfoundland. I mean, that's, that's straight across the country because of, you know, the housing stock. Talk about, you know, when someone comes to you, women or children that are fleeing violence, and you talk about how long they may stay, how do you work towards finding them a, a, another safer place to go, a transition? But what does that look like? Well, we have, um, Grace Barks has actually has a um, affordable supportive housing unit as well. So we have six apartments of our own. Um, that, you know, well, they're at capacity all the time, but generally, like if there's an opening, women in the shelter have first uh, opportunity to, to move out there. Uh, but we also have the uh, housing support worker uh, that's uh, part of our team. She's uh, Her position is sponsored through a supportive living program with Newfoundland Labrador Housing. So she's a great help to us and to the women in terms of, you know, finding housing, uh, if it's private, you know, probably securing um rental subsidies, different things like that. And, you know, we work together in terms of, you know, um, coming up, you know, with damage deposits and and different things like that. But, uh, you know, when there's, you know, Newfoundland Labrador Housing in our area, I think has about 100 people on the wait list for this region. So uh, the housing stock is, uh, you know, is is, uh, is maxed, I guess, in, in terms of, uh, you know, occupancy. Uh, one of the great things for, uh, you know, the women and children that we serve is that uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing has a victims of violence policy where they, um, you know, um, are at the top of the list in terms of priority for housing. So, you know, that's helpful as well. But again, you know, when there, when there isn't, any stock available, you know, we, we see women are staying a lot longer and, uh, you know, the new shelter uh, will make that a little bit more comfortable for those having to stay longer. What's the new shelter going to look like, you know, insofar as number of rooms and beds and security features, those types of things? Mm-hmm. So the new shelter um, actually has, um, say, a central area where there'll be offices and, and community space and, you know, kitchen um living room those kind of things 
and then we have two wings um, that would come off of the the central location. So we have family suites and we have uh, suites for single women, because again, you know, the needs for um, those two different populations are different, and we wanted to make sure, you know, with the feedback from the women that we've gotten over the years that, um, you know, their needs are different when, when you have children and when you don't have children and, and uh, being able to give them, um, you know, a unit where where it's more of a, almost like a, a kitchenette and a bedroom that they're able to, you know, uh, be a little bit more comfortable, have some more privacy, have the ability, you know, to cook a small meal for themselves in their own their own uh, room if, if, you know, if they choose so instead of, uh, you know, in the communal area. Because, you know, the reality being is that, you know, shelter, the sheltering program 23 years ago, uh, you know, for us was more based on community living and everybody had the same needs. But, you know, we've certainly learned over the years that that's not the case. And, uh, you know, the model that we've chosen to go with comes from the experience that we've gained over, over the years and from the input and, and vision from the women and children that we've served. I think the land was donated by the town of Marystown, which is appropriately so. But there's something called the Federal Affordable Housing Fund Women and Children's Stream. What does that mean? How does that work? Well, that was specifically um, a call, I guess, to all the um, organizations who service women and children um, across the country. And it was specifically for transitional housing or, you know, new shelters, new builds. Do we know what the annual pot of money is available in that stream? Because unfortunately, really unfortunately, the need is growing, the demand is growing. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm not 100% correct, Patty, but I think it was somewhere in, uh, around $9.1 million, I think, for the entire country. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't be quoted, but um, that's the number that's uh, coming to mind. And almost $7 million of it went to your sh- new shelter expansion. Yes, well, with, you know, with some partners coming together, yep. I appreciate with the time. Provincial. Lisa, yeah. anything yeah. else you want to talk about this morning? No, I don't. I just want to take, you know, thank everyone that's been involved and has supported us. And, uh, you know, we look forward to, uh, in four months' time, providing a better service to those who deserve it most. Good news for bad conditions. But I appreciate this, Lisa. Keep up the good work. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Patty. Take care. You Bye-bye. too. Bye-bye. It's Lisa Slaney, Executive Director of Grace Sparks House. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll be speaking with you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner. That's Michael Harvey. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Great to talk to you this morning, Patty. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. So I've been going down a bit of an artificial intelligence rabbit hole. I don't know a whole, whole lot about it, which is my effort to try to figure it out. And some of the upsides of it, but of course, with upsides uh, online platforms, there's a lot to be concerned with regarding artificial intelligence. Back in December of last year, you launched an effort with your provincial counterparts to talk about a guideline or a set of principles. What exactly are you working towards? Sure. So let me pause, first of all, and just make sure that we're all using the same language uh, because, or at least I'm clear about what language I'm using, because AI does, the term gets thrown around, a lot of different terms get thrown around. It does. So 
yeah. So first, I'll just say that AI, as a as a basic term, is uh, we can use that to to describe a machine system that where where a human will program the computer with you know a, a, pro, a program that's called an algorithm, and then that algorithm will start to learn as it goes, and it will be you can train that algorithm on some data or uh, it can start to learn itself as it starts to work and collect data and produce outputs. Um, but the key here is that it, it changes as it goes, it learns as it goes. So a good, another good synonym for, for this basic form of AI is, is machine learning. It's, we're not talking about every single example where a computer would, would automatically process uh, data. Uh, it's only AI, and it's not like we don't have some concerns about systems like that, but I'll, we'll put those to the side. Here what we're talking about is systems that kind of learn as they go. And this is important because once a system learns as it goes and the outputs and decisions it's making at some point in the future are not the same as it would have made at the beginning when there was a human directly involved. And so that's where that's where we get some privacy and ethical issues that may emerge. So the second term I want to introduce into our conversation is generative AI. So this is a new type of AI that's really taken the world by storm in the past year. And generative AI uh, is used for uh, a, a model that will uh, produce outputs that are not simple things like a piece of information or a decision, but rather um, they're uh, they're like written outputs, like a text uh, or uh, an essay, or it can produce pictures or so on. It's called generative because it generates things. Uh, and these models then can mimic in what they, the outcome can mimic what a human would might sound or produce, right? So, so now these systems start to, and potentially can even be mistaken for humans because of what they they produce. Are we so referring to what they call the deep fake? A deep faking uh, can be a, a or a generative AI systems like one that's really common for pictures is known as Dolly. Dolly can generate deep fakes where it can use AI to gather information and and produce a picture or even a video that looks like it is a uh, it, it looks like a human or um, it looks like a specific human. Yeah, uh, and so generative AI can be used to produce deep fakes. It can be used. ChatGPT is a good example. It can be used to produce um, uh, essays, let's say, or uh, you know, written written answers to questions and things like that. Interviews, poems, songs, and novels. So, so these the the key here, though, with generative AI, two really important and novel things about it. First is to train a model like this, you've got to collect a huge amount of data. Uh, ChatGPT is this, you know, we say it's scrape the internet for data. Uh, and collected all the data it can, uh, and this is uh, this vast collection of data is what gives us a lot of privacy concerns. Um, the second thing that's novel about it is that it's we start to be able to mistake it more and more for uh, for humans. Uh, but the third type of AI, and we need to be careful that we don't we we are clear that we're not talking about this at this point, is generalized artificial intelligence, and this is where a a computer not only looks and sounds like a human, but actually thinks like a human. Generative AI, like ChatGPT, they're really like super parrots, right? They 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 might be mistaken for humans, but uh, and they might sound like humans, they might look like humans, but they're not. They don't actually think like humans. They're not actually smart. 
Um, but a generalized artificial intelligence would be like a not not like a superpower. It would be like a superhuman, and that's some some distance out. And some people say it may never be possible. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're we're talking about here the the first two forms uh, of AI. Let's let me have a, a shot at getting a better understanding of the privacy concern. If I've put my own private information out there, whether it be on social media or what have you, or I've inputted it some some into these online. Uh, artificial intelligence platforms, if I've put the information out there willfully, where does the privacy control and concern come to play? Well, it, so there's two types of, uh, two privacy concerns I'd, I'd identify. The first is these large language models, these generative AI systems, because they need to collect huge amounts of data to train their models, they've gone out and they've gotten data wherever they can. They've, they've scraped the internet. And yeah, most of what they have, um, they've uh, found has been in the, or at least in the public domain, or you could say it's on the internet and it's out there. Now, the notion that everything on the internet is in the public domain is not actually is not actually true. You know, you can't um, you can't go and Google for do a Google image search for a picture and then find one and use that picture for anything you want. Uh, that's um, that that picture that you find is is still copy the copyright protected material of someone. So a notion that you that when you put something on the internet, it is thus in the public domain and free from copyright protection, and you have no control over it anymore. And that's that's not true. Um, it's um, so we we sh and you sh we shouldn't expect it to be the case. We should expect that that even even when we we publish personal information, that it we we don't just abdicate all ownership abilities of that. So that's the first thing is the, the sheer amount of data that it has to collect and collect it without any knowledge or consent of of who it's being collected from. There's a privacy concern there. The second concern though is when it's how it's being how it's used in specific applications. And and here my mandate uh, even though you know I might talk sometimes about the private sector, my mandate is specifically the the public sector and the health sector here in this province. And so, when when public bodies and uh, healthcare providers and what we call custodians uh, introduce AI systems, um, they are going to need to train those models with data, both data that they have, uh, you know, at hand uh, in their own systems already. Uh, and data that they collect uh, as part of the implementation of this model. And we need to, when they train that, we need to make sure they're using data that has been either collected specifically for that purpose, or else there is the appropriate legal authority to use the data that they already have to train the model. So, so models that simply find data that is lying around, so whether it's on the internet or in existing, uh, you know, public body government systems, uh, we need to make sure the proper legal authority is there to use that data for that purpose. And the, the specific challenge with AI is because it needs so much of this raw data. Uh, that is a that is a very privacy invasive uh, approach. You know, the general principle in our in our legislation is that public bodies and custodians should collect the least amount of personal information necessary to, to actually get their work done. So, so AI works kind of the opposite way. So as you mentioned, you know, if I put something out there, it doesn't mean that I've given up any legal control or authorization for how it's to be used. So 
what are we suggesting that the privacy legislation be? Is it to be tailor-made for specifically generative uh, artificial intelligence? Because as you mentioned, there are some laws that protect me already. So what needs to be done to enhance those to focus in on something that's still very, very new? Right. So until now, most privacy laws in this province and elsewhere in the country and around the world have tried to be what we call technologically neutral. We just establish a base set of principles. uh, And then, you know, as technology uh, evolves, we apply the principles to them. AI is a little bit different because of that, mainly because of that one point that I just made about how it how it treats data. For that reason, there are new laws that are emerging uh, that are specific to AI. So to answer your question, the answer is yes, uh, that we do need laws specifically for AI. So in the EU, there, the, the EU has just announced new draft legislation uh, called the, uh, that will regulate AI. There is, regula- there is uh, draft legislation for Parliament called the Artificial uh, ADA is what it's called, uh, the art- to regulate artificial intelligence. The, that act will start to that federal act if it if it comes into force will start to affect what's happening in in the province in particular it'll start to affect our our healthcare sector the private sector is already under federal jurisdiction but AI that's implemented in the health sector will certainly be subject to the artificial this federal artificial intelligence act so so we need to start getting our our head around. Uh, what's um, what specific laws are necessary for artificial intelligence uh, and so that we know how to regulate it in a way that makes sense for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians uh, so but but we but before you know we say that that's not to imply that that it's the wild west out there and that that AI is currently not regulated at all it certainly is it, it has to comply with our existing privacy legislation the need for new and enhanced legislation doesn't mean that it's completely lawless. The issue, I think, would be that, you know, since its advent, and even the godfather of artificial intelligence is Jeffrey Hinton, I think is his name, you know, he's mm-hmm. worried about how quickly it's um, advancing. We're even talking about some of these platforms being, you know, self-learning and possibly sentient already, which is, you know, something uh, stolen from a Hollywood script. So with governments that don't necessarily move very quickly, but compared to the breakneck pace of the advancements in AI, what is your concern based on the timeliness of putting some of these new laws in place? Because before long, it might not be the wild, wild west today, but the potential for it to be exactly that is right around the corner. Right. So that's uh, that's why our rec- we made recommendations uh, to both the recent um, uh, review of the Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act and then this, another review to the Personal Health Information Act. So both of those acts are essentially still now under review. The Minister Hogan has a report on the former and the second. There's a, uh, the review is still ongoing with the Department of Health. Um, but our submissions to both of those reviews were, listen, uh, for any public body or custodian that's, that's going to introduce an AI application, they should do what's known as an algorithmic impact assessment, uh, you know, you can design your own template for those, but there's lots of examples, including at the federal level. So you do an algorithmic assessment, and then you let us know about it. That way, we know what's out there. At this point, you know, we're all learning really quickly, but at least that way, we'd have an inventory uh, of what's out there. Right now, we, we really don't know uh, what's out there, and it's creeping in everywhere. So that's the first point I make is that it uh, is that we need to we need to start now uh, to imagine that we can uh, we can wait until we have it all figured out and then pass a law. 
uh, it'll be it'll be potentially too late by then, and AI applications will be everywhere. Again, my concern is not so much the Jeffrey Hinton, you know, that we'll hit this generalized artificial intelligence tomorrow, and you know, Skynet will become active. That's less of the concern here. The concern is that before long, the 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 first two types of artificial intelligence that I was talking about, the uh, will be in every computer program that's out there. It'll be in our word processors and and we will start we'll stop even talking about it because it'll just be how how computers are programmed uh, and we won't have the right tools we won't even know have an inventory of what what's out there so that's my concern. I understand your two focus areas at this point, and I'm glad you articulated to to them uh, to us this morning. But is there a next wave of this that would fall inside your ballywick? Because I know some things like job loss due to automation is not your issue, uh, whether it be socioeconomic inequality because of AI, it's not your concern. But things that are federally regulated and the laws around the book, including privacy concerns, because there's the possibility for trade happy algorithms to cause a financial upheaval. You know, because some of those trade platforms have gone berserk. We've seen examples in the past. So is that something that would fall into your purview? Because it is federally regulated, it has privacy concerns attached? Right. Well, some of those, some of those things uh, would and, and would not. So uh, for that reason, we, in our submissions, we did point out that, yeah, there's a lot of privacy issues related to, to AI, but there's also some ethic ethical uh, issues as well. Now, trying to regulate the financial markets and, and that it would, would be beyond any, any scope that we're talking about. And we'd have to rely on other, other regulators, uh, let's say a federal or a, a securities regulators and, and so on to be cooperating together. But generally speaking, just at the, at the outset, yeah, there are privacy issues, but there's also significant ethical issues. And so we did make the argument to, to the government that when it, if if you were going to go ahead and, and give us the, the authority to comment on algorithmic impact assessments, yeah, that you expand our ability to comment not just on privacy matters but on ethical issues as well. Um, we really have to get our foot in the door on this and get and get rolling. Uh, otherwise, we'll be left way behind. But uh, you know, the future uh, as we get to the future and the more widespread application of these uh, these things. I mean, it, this requires us to be continuing to talk more and more with our, our with our colleagues in other provinces and and even internationally. Um, we are already doing that, as you you know, the the joint statement of principles that you referenced, Patty, is a is a good example of that. The uh, federal, provincial, territorial commissioners have started to collaborate much more than we did in the you know the pre-pandemic days because we need to rely on each other's knowledge and resource and expertise uh in order to get our hands around really rapidly changing technological development really appreciate your time this morning michael thank you let's talk to you penny take good care bye-bye as the province's information and privacy commissioner michael harvey and you know again i'll admit much of this is over my head try to be better informed on and have a better understanding of but this is going to come into play in almost every walk of life, everything that we touch and deal with. As Michael said, it'll simply be part of the word processing of every computer. It'll just be the reality that we're all dealing with, whether it be unbeknownst to us or otherwise. They're even talking about predictive policing algorithms to talk about what neighborhoods may see more crime. And so that would be the issue, you know, talk about law enforcement agencies, using biometrics and what have you, and the nanny cam state that we pretty much live in. And now for it to be digitized like this. And if you're an AI user, help me answer this question. So, of course, it's mining copious amounts of data. Our other users, say ChatGPT, 
Are other users able to find out what some of the input I offer to the platform was to spit out whether it be a song, a poem, an essay, or whatever the case may be? So can we see what other people are asking the platform to do? That might be a stupid question, but it would be great to have an answer too. Let's take a break. When we come back, the show is all yours. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. So based on the conversation we had with Michael Harvey just then and some of the uh, commentary offered yesterday, someone via email says, you know, are we not exaggerating the potential downside of artificial intelligence? Well, the fact of the matter is, unless you get out in front of it, before it's too late, we may indeed see every single potential downside be the reality of life. So I don't think the exaggeration is part of the conversation at all. I think we've got to figure it out. Now, they also went on in the email to say, you know, I think we're exaggerating the issue of job losses. Well, automation has already seen a significant job loss of the workforce of everyone living in North America. It just has. I mean, just look at the number of people used to take to build a car versus what it takes to build a car today. Then you add to electronics and furniture, everything under the sun. Places that have automated, it does indeed require human beings to be there to install and to do ongoing maintenance for any automation, but it has replaced people. In the United States, the, uh, the current thought is that, let's see here, 30% of the hours currently being worked in the U.S. economy could be automated. Goldman Sachs states that 300 million full-time jobs could be lost due to AI automation. So I think getting out in front of it, having a better understanding. And the, furthermore, I just don't think it's a big enough conversation amongst the general public. Some people are very savvy and they use these tools, whether it be just to begin their research and, of course, the risk of plagiarism and academic probation or suspension. That's real. But... People might be using it for fun and having a good laugh with it, having some online platform generate a poem to read to your girlfriend, whatever it is. And some of that is very innocuous and is very innocent, and there's nothing to be too worried about on that front. But some of the other applications that have already come to pass, and if they're already started, you know full well once those potential uses become more popular, then there's the problem. And so, again, it's hard to legislate some of this stuff because if you talk about a bias algorithm, for instance, that's creating purposeful, willful disinformation, that's one thing. If we're talking about misinformation, because they're two different things, is how do you find someone through legislation and or political body, party, or government, parliament, legislature, whatever the case may be, that gets to be the arbiter of truth? You know, that's going to be a tricky piece of business. Now, I don't deny that there's got to be some controls of what is the wild, wild west of the internet that's getting away from us a little bit. And you see it if you're a social media user in particular that it can be highly problematic. What once was fun and just sharing stories and images and thoughts and rallying people on the in like-minded causes or sharing photographs is not exactly that anymore. Okay, very quickly before we get to the news and your calls. So I have a handful of people that every time there's a story regarding crime, especially murder or child pornography or the like heinous crimes. And, of course, the punishment has to meet, uh, match the crime. But I have people, especially when we talk about the number of murders, and there's at least a half dozen murder cases going to be going through the courts here this calendar year in the province. It's the issue of how we punish people. And there's always been extended calls by some for the death penalty. Now, it's wildly unpopular as a concept, corporal punishment or death penalty uh, in this country for a variety of reasons. But an extraordinary story coming from uh, New Brunswick. Two St. John men have been exonerated because they were wrongfully convicted of murdering another man 40 years ago in the death of the uh, guy named George Lehman in 1983. The fellows who were wrongfully convicted, Robert Mailman and Walter Gillespie, walked out of the courthouse yesterday free men. 
40 years later. There's reasons why the death penalty doesn't make any sense, and that's just one great example. Interestingly, inside the story, there's a couple of Newfoundlanders that are working on this particular case. Ronald Dalton, who was himself wrongfully convicted, he's the co-president of Innocence Canada, which I had no idea. They took up this case back in 2018. They've been working on it ever since. And now the federal minister of justice overturned the convictions, allowed for new trials. They had their new trials, and they've been exonerated. Why? The Crown couldn't present any evidence of guilt. The people that testified those 40 years ago, having said they saw these two men at the crime scene, they later recanted, admitted they lied on the stand. So, consequently... Out they walk. The other Newfoundlander involved in this, one of the lawyers representing Mr. Mailman and Gillespie, is Jerome Kennedy. Apparently he's a lawyer that works with Innocence Canada as well. So I just thought that was, you know, an interesting story we'll call it. But here are the boys, 76 and 80 years of age. You know, what's next? Who knows? One man is in really poor health. He's got terminal cancer. And, you know, they'll talk about compensation. But at their age, nothing gets back 40 years lost behind bars. And you wonder what became of the folks who got on the stand, lied, put them at the scene, when alibi and investigations into their alibi, putting them nowhere near the crime scene, was not involved. Disclosure from the prosecution was not what it's intended to be by law so that they could have an adequate defense. So the two boys, two men, they walk free 40 years later after being wrongfully convicted. Amazing stuff. Let's take a break. When we come back, another hour left of the program to discuss whatever's on your mind. Do not go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. I was just forwarded some information from Grace Sparks House where I speak with the Executive Director Lisa Slaney about the new shelter that they're being that's being built to the tune of some $7.5 million. It came, a lot of the funding came through a stream called Affordable Housing for Women and Children. Uh, it was a very specific stream. I asked her if she knew how much money was in that pot. I kind of put her on the spot. That's not really her, her the business that she works in. But they provided me the accurate number. It was $250 million for that specific stream of funding. And now it has been closed. All the projects selected have been selected. One, of course, Grace Parks House in Marystown, and the other, Hope Haven in Lab City. Let's go. Lionel Rowan, say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Centre. He's the leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Jim Din. On line number one, you're on the air. We got that pot up, Dave, or uh, Greg? Oh, no, there you go. Sorry oh, about that. there we I go. Had myself on, I had myself on mute. We got good morning, you. Good uh, morning. Happy New Year to you, uh, your family, the VOCM family, and all your listeners tuning in at this point in time. Uh, a good way to start the year on this uh, <laughs> this snowy day, I guess, on Friday. Fair enough. I just want to have a quick chat uh, about, well, I don't know how quick it's going to be. You, you will determine that. <laughs> uh uh, with regards to, I guess, a, a pattern that I've seen that that sort of deeply frustrates me and it has uh, is impacting what I guess some of the issues that I'm, I've been trying to help people with, and it has to do with announcements that give the impression that work is being done, uh, that uh, and uh, uh, that you know progress is being made, and yet we still seem that that the serious problems are not being addressed and they're still having the their the, the, the practical uh, solutions are don't seem to be put in place for it and i'll look at three uh three issues uh three areas uh, education healthcare, and housing I'll, I'll try to tie these together we've had the announcement of the school district uh, being rebranded the amalgamation into the district we've asked for like how is this going to benefit the, the education system 
uh, has been told, but there's a lot of money going into rebranding it. And yet only just before Christmas, we had a teacher, uh, a retired teacher, recently retired, and still working as a substitute, talk about the level of violence that exists in the classroom um, and, uh, and and the need to address that resource to inclusion, uh, inclusion educa- inclusive education model. And I will tell you that the number of teachers uh, that called uh, that have contacted me and contacted him have, you know, indicates that that's a serious problem that needs to be addressed. Yet we have never, uh, uh, whenever we've had those questions asked in the House of Assembly, we've never had a clear answer. When I was president, I know I've spoken to you at this uh, at the time when I was president of the NLTA about this very issue. Here we are, almost ten years later, and still nothing. Healthcare. Again, we've had all these announcements uh, for hiring and, uh, uh, and about the progress that's being made, about the amalgamation of the uh, the ambulance and so on and so forth, the uh, you know the creation of a provincial ambulance system. And yet, we have uh, announcements uh, or directives uh, or uh, notifications from uh, health that people that the emergency rooms are full and that really um, you know that they can experience wait wait uh, wait long wait times and uh, or not not to go to the emergency room and yet only this week uh, I've had spoken with two people one who was uh, was 24 and waiting in the emergency room for 24 and a half hours because uh, his spouse had a uh, had chest pains and I we had another person email us yesterday he contacted Medicare Piero for have a prescription and knew there said no we can't do that you've got to uh, you, for this prescription you've got to go to the emergency room because he doesn't have a family doctor and I guess the last one that you've heard me speak most about uh, a lot uh, in the last uh, few months last year has to do with housing again we've had a task force announced um, we've had uh, the promise of housing uh, unit uh, of housing options and so on and so forth and yet, uh, and we had the promise also that people would not be in shelters by Christmas, and yet people the uh, or in the tent city, and yet here we have people. Not only, I would say not only sleeping outside the colonial building, but throughout the province there are people in the rough or in shelters or uh, couch surfing and so on and so forth. And this week again, two seniors uh, call uh, one just before, on Christmas Eve, and this week they're facing a no-fault eviction. And the only thing. One thing that stood out with one is there, and uh, the couple were in an absolute panic that they were going to end up. Uh, they didn't know where they were going to go, um, uh, uh, where they were going to live, and they were absolutely petrified at the prospect that they could be living in uh, in, in tents uh, or that they could be living in a shelter. And uh, you know, and they they have now we can send them to uh, uh, like the res- residential tenancies but in the end that's not going to solve the problem because it's perfectly legal uh, and acceptable under the current regulations Just before we go so, too far Jim let's take them one at a time uh, yeah. I was listening to the healthcare one what was the education one though because I didn't jot it down Well the education one they, uh, there was an announcement was on your say last week about the like you know the, they re, they're rebranding the uh, they oh, yeah. the uh, NLESD into the, the Department of Education Um uh, and the, the big thing is the rebranding. That's the easy stuff to do. It gives the impression while we're moving ahead. Yet I can tell you, we've asked uh, questions about what's the plan, uh, like what was what what were they hope the, the to accomplish a cost benefit analysis. Apparently, there's a report, a consultant's report, which no one has seen and they will not share. Um, but 
the other thing I've asked is, has to do with the allocation uh, model and uh, and the model that reflects the needs of the children in the in the classroom. We haven't had a clear uh, when the report was being prepared. Uh, we couldn't get an answer on it because there's a report being prepared. Still haven't gotten an answer on it. But those are practical things, I guess. And yet we hear it as I point out the teacher who. Uh, uh, who was speaking about the class classroom violence and uh, that, that that you see there? Those are the serious issues that need to be addressed more than, let's say, integrating the uh, you know the announcements of rebranding and the announcements of integrating the the, the district into the uh, into the uh, the department. Because I, I I guess for me the key thing is how is this going to benefit? Uh, we heard that it will, but. I have my doubts, especially as, as it becomes more and more corporate and more and more re removed from the realities of the classroom. My fear is that uh, a lot of these problems are not going to get uh, any better. They're probably going to get worse in some cases. Homelessness, the country took its uh, eye off the ball. It's as simple as that. The issue has been growing and developing over the last number of years. People can talk about it's all about immigration. No, it's not. It's all about mindset no, as much as it is about immigration. Now, I think it's further complicating the issue, the number of newcomers to Canada. But we've just changed the way we think about housing, period. It's as simple as that. It used to be manageable for a family of four, one person working, car in the driveway, a roof over your head. Then it went all to uh, economic benchmarks. You know, how good is the economy doing? Housing starts. What's the largest investment I'll ever have? My, uh, the equity of my home. What's the contribution of housing to GDP? So those are two different ways to think about something that's fundamental in this world and the right that people have to be safe in their own home or something they can call their own as a rental land or as a mortgage holder whatever the case may be. No, I, and I totally agree with that. It's interesting. You, you, it, it, and, I, and you brought up the, um, well, I'll start with the last point you made. There's an income uh, disparity. Like, if you have the income, you will be able to absorb, you can absorb the change. But there's there's an income piece to this with the people who are on low income or fixed incomes, uh, and and they can't absorb these shocks. But they uh, the or the increases, and and they're and they're facing the real prospect of being homelessness. That's the other thing. I think also there's room here where where, we, where government needs to step in, like it did post World War II, to to uh, basically make sure we have affordable homes. For everyone, there are going to be there are going to be people who are going to be able to afford their own home. But I think for the people who are uh, made, their salaries are such then uh, are, are fixed or too low, then there's got to be something in place other than the uh, let's say the the private market system. But I do want to talk to you about you raised the issue about immigration, and it's interesting. And and you said very clearly that it's not an, it's not the fault of immigrants or immigration. But yet I hear from people, you can hear the desperation that, uh, you know, when people say, will say to me, we've got to look after our own first. I said, the, those, the newcomers who are coming to the, this province are not to blame for this issue. This is, the, like, uh, this is a failure to plan. As you said, the government took their eye off the ball, and, and this should have been part of the piece. Every, everyone who calls Newfoundland and Labrador a home should have a home in which to live. They shouldn't be struggling to find a home in, uh, in uh, living in fear of uh, losing it. And the other thing is we're going to need, uh, we're going to need newcomers. Uh, immigrants here just to sustain our economy, and uh, especially considering we're, that we're an aging population. But I think there had to be, there's got to be better, it's like knowing this, knowing that was needed, 
their eyes should have been firmly on the ball. Uh, I mean, this government previous, whatever you want, eight, eight nine years, which I knew, I knew bef- uh, back before, long before I was into a, a government, uh, the significance of housing. And that's just my own volunteer experience with the, uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, what we were seeing. Sure. So you're right. But, uh, you know, to me, uh, if we want to grow Newfoundland, if we want to attract people here, if we want people to stay here, if we want students to make, to, to uh, do their studies here and then, and make this their home, then you've got to make sure that, uh, you know, that, that I know we're behind the eight ball right now, but there's got to be a concerted effort to get this that problem fixed, especially if, if what if a Canada mortgage and housing talks, we're, we're going to need 60,000 homes uh, uh, over the next uh, six years or so just to keep up with it. it yeah, I'm having a hard time person. understanding that number, to be honest with you. I it am. seems a little bit exaggerated, but, you know, we just have to be careful here because yeah. it's easy enough to demonize individuals because immigration is a policy. Immigrants are people. Exactly. It's not the immigrants' yeah, fault that the issue has not, been a bro- has not been broached or attended to by all levels of government. So yeah. when we look at it, let's just be careful that we go down the appropriate path based on what's the reality. So again, aspirational politics is always going to be part of it. You know, it's the slogan airing. It's talking about the need for skilled tradespeople, the need for newcomers, the labor shortage, you know, whatever the case may be. But that aspirational stuff also requires the boring legwork behind closed doors, the bureaucracy to ensure that the numbers jibe with the reality of of life on the ground, housing, health care, actual job opportunities, everything that's included. Because it's fine to say, over the course of the next three years, this liberal government will welcome 1.5 million newcomers but not do the boring work. It's just yeah. failing them. You know, I think you can attach that exact same sentiment to the issue regarding uh, mandates for electric vehicles and electrification of yeah. the grid and all that stuff. Unless we do the boring work up front, we won't have the grid capacity to deal with all of these federal mandates. So give me some aspirations. Fine. Do the boring network and tell me who's, who did it and how far out in front of the issue we are. Because currently, we have the cart in front of the horse on some of the biggest issues in the country. Look. We, we had an announcement of a new St. Clair's hospital in my district. I should be uh, over the moon at that, but th- that's the shiny new object. You can have a ribbon-cutting ceremony. I understand all that. But in the end, it, it's going to come down to how do you make sure that you're going to have people uh, who want who, to staff and want to stay there because uh, I pity the poor, the poor healthcare workers who are uh, in the emergency room and they're trying to keep up with the demand. That's, that's, that's not... That's not shiny. That's not uh, exciting. It doesn't have the the photo op, but I think it has a a, a, a greater uh, a greater impact on the quality of life and the uh, and the uh, healthcare system. But I agree with you on that, Patty. It comes down to the doing the nuts and bolts. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's like looking at the brand new kitchen in your house. It only it. it, it it only works if the plumbing, the the, uh, the 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 connections in that are all in place, and that's the boring stuff. But you're right; it's the boring stuff that needs to be done. But take care of that, and then you start taking care of everything else. To me, I, I uh, we we just got to make it sure that everyone who needs a place to live, regardless of their conditions, uh, or their situation, or choices, or whatever else has uh, a place to live and uh, and deal with that and and uh, have that in place that's a plan um, you know that but you hit the nail on the head there and and those and those are the things that are causing me significant frustration like when people call me and they're looking for a place to live 
I'm at the stage where, uh, you know, as a member uh, M- a- a- MHA for St. John's Centre, a member of the third party of the NDP, like we, we don't have le- the access to the levers of control. And so we're, we're trying to make sure that a... Uh, well, how do we help them, knowing full well that the uh, the chances of a, of a, a successful outcome the way they want may not be there anymore? Uh, but to me, I, I, I guess if I had one wish for the uh, uh, the few as we move forward to have a clear to see this plan be transparent about the situation and what needs to be done so that if we know, for example, people are without a doctor, well, what is the actual number? What is the wait list? When can I, yeah. when will I have access to a care clinic? Uh, when are we going to address their allocation? And more importantly, when it comes to housing, whilst uh, we heard the announcement, I think, of Grace Barker uh, at the house in, in um, Cornerbrook, that's great for, and you know, we need that for women fleeing uh, and uh, fleeing violence, but we also need the same kind of the plan that we're actually going to have people who are currently in shelter, out of mm-hmm. shelter by this time. Jim, I've got to leave it there because I'm late for the break, but I appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Take sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a, have a good year. You Bye-bye. too. Bye-bye. You know, final thought. Government has now become just simply all about politics. It's glitzy. It's trying to come up with the latest soundbite that's going to make an appearance on the news, as opposed to the fact that government should be the most boring thing in the country. I mean, we should all hope for government to be absolutely painfully boring to watch because it's about doing the people's business. It's not about how many people looked at your stupid video on Twitter, right? But that's what it's become. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to say good morning to Dr. Eden Sutherland. He's the VP out of Grenfell talking about the hack of their cyber systems at that campus. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the VP out of the Grenfell campus of Memorial University. That's Dr. Ian Sutherland. Dr. Sutherland, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Happy New Year to you, and Happy New Year to all of your listeners. The very same to you, to your colleagues and students at Grenfell. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So we spoke with Josh Leposky, the MUNFA president, a couple of days ago about the cyber incident, but there's still a lot of unknowns, not only as to what happened, but what's affected, what's not, and what the students can expect on Monday. Where do you want to start? Well, the key message I want to get out to you and all of your listeners is that uh, you know we are obviously the victim of a cybersecurity incident, but we are absolutely not a victim in our response uh, to the situation, which has been extremely rapid and robust. Of course, we start with containment, and that started immediately and uh, moving rapidly on to investigation and then rapidly on to operational planning. And uh, we're really, uh, investigation is certainly still ongoing, but we're very much into operational planning and implementation at this time. And uh, you know, Things are rolling out uh, minute by minute, hour by hour here at Grenfell as we ramp back into a fantastic, uh, although definitely different, semester uh, that will start in person on Monday. Uh, Before we get into what we can expect on Monday or what the students and staff can expect on Monday, what was the red flag that went up? Like, How was it even identified that emergency protocols were required to keep it from getting any worse? Do you you know uh, specifically what happened? So the investigation is ongoing as to specifically what happened. Uh, certainly uh, last Friday, December the 29th, uh, an issue was noted and our IT specialists, and we have fantastic IT specialists here at Grenfell and certainly right across Memorial University, uh, they looked into it immediately and thought that something is not right here and they uh, enacted the, uh, the security protocols right away, which in the very first instance is a complete shutdown of all IT services so that we can focus on containment. 
Okay, so I know there are some platforms that are operated from Mon.ca versus inside the internal servers at Grenfell. There were some concerns based on faculty thinking, you know, what am I going to use to deliver some of the curriculum that relies on the internet at your school, as opposed to Brightspace, which I think is housed at Mon.ca. So what do the lecturers, the professors need to know about whether or not they have to use their own personal equipment and whether or not they're going to be able to use email and some of the courses that rely on technology? So what's the update uh, broadly? Yeah, absolutely. So as we have moved into the operational phase uh, of this uh, this work, uh, we've been directly including, of course, all of our faculty members. So in fact, as we speak, there is a faculty meeting happening right now, and that is the third daily faculty meeting this week, and those will continue every day uh, for as long as we, we need to. Uh, we're also going to be holding daily coffee breaks so we can hear from them, and our academic programming chairs, those are the heads of each of the uh, degree programs at Grenfell, uh, they'll be, uh, they are being tied directly into our academic content continuity planning team. So faculty voice is coming in loud and clear as we are moving through this operational planning phase. Uh, For our our academic uh, instructors, our faculty faculty members, professors, and so on, the Brightspace shell, so that is our primary learning management system used in most courses uh, right across the university. That is fully operational, fully functioning, was was never impacted whatsoever. Here on the campus, obviously, as I said, uh, as part of our protocols, our IT services were all shut down immediately and they they continue to be so as the investigation and uh, eventually restoration work uh, happens but we're rolling out a whole uh, uh, slew of as it were of of workarounds and 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 uh, opportunities for faculty to and students and staff to to get as operational as possible for example uh, as we speak again uh, Wi-Fi hotspots are being installed at various points around the campus Uh, we are uh, setting up an internet cafe for students and that will be active as of tomorrow uh, as I said, the Brightspace shell is open. And then, of course, not everything at the university is, is about courses. That is our, our primary uh, mission, teaching and learning. But we also want to make sure that our students have as rich an experience as possible. Uh, so our Grove, the cafeteria, food services is fully operational. And we're really focused on our social and recreational activities. So uh, movie nights at the library, board games, uh, puzzles, of course, books. Uh, our orientation activities are all moving forward. And our sports and recreational events are all moving forward as well. So uh, the academic mission is, is primary f- focus for all of us, and particularly working with our faculty and our administrative staff on that, uh, but also ensuring that the student experience is as rich as possible. And I have to say, I've been, of course, connecting with students as much as possible over the last 48 hours, and they are making the best of this situation and getting board games and so on from the library, the books, the puzzles, uh, and they're uh, kind of taking this on as a, as a new experience and a, and a way to experience life a little bit away from their, their phones or their uh, their uh, electronic devices. Uh, Speak to the student experience, because you just articulated some of the other offerings beyond teaching and learning, but allay their fears with going on to your system, period, whether it be in a Wi-Fi hotspot or otherwise, because we're warned just relentlessly about protection of our own privacy and our own banking information, our own social insurance number, all of those types of things. So what about if a student says, well, their system's been hacked. I don't want anything to do with it. What do you say? (laughs) So we have great cybersecurity uh, systems uh, and measures in place uh, always, uh, and you know, we are, uh, as every organization, constantly updating 
those as, as new threats and understandings emerge. So we have great systems. Obviously, as we all know, no system is foolproof, and that's why we also have the emergency protocols and security protocols, which have been, I will say, very effective in this case. You know, I think one good news piece around this, it's not a good news story, obviously, but one good news piece within it is that this was uh, responded to so quickly that it was contained with only only within the Grenfell campus system. That's not good for us. Uh, what I will assure our students is that once our systems are up and running, uh, they, they were great before this incident, and they are going to be even greater after them because we also have a fantastic team of cybersecurity experts that are literally on the ground with us, a few of them, uh, helping us work through this. So our focus is, of course, getting back up, but getting back up in as secure a manner as one can possibly be. Uh, as we roll out the Wi-Fi hotspots and so on, these sort of intermediary measures, uh, it's important to know that these are measures that are not running through our systems. So our systems uh, will remain uh, shut down uh, for as long as the investigation and the eventual restoration uh, will take. Uh, and, you know, that's not going to be, we're not measuring that in hours or indeed uh, even a few days. We're, we're probably looking at uh, a few weeks before things uh, get restored to what we would normally have. Uh, so when a, if a student wants to log into a Wi-Fi hotspot, you know, some point next week or go down to the Internet Cafe, I can assure them that those are systems that are not running through Grenfell systems now. We will not have our systems up and operational until we are as certain as is humanly possible that they're okay. I really appreciate the time this morning, Dr. Sutherland. Anything else you'd like to say? I just want to say a huge thank you to uh, everyone that's been responding to this. I, I can tell everybody in the province, you should be very proud of the faculty, staff, and students of Memorial University, particularly Grenfell Campus, and how we've responded to this. And a particular shout-out, of course, to our IT professionals, and especially a shout-out also to our faculty and instructional staff who are uh, working to, to start the semester off in a very different and, and somewhat disrupted way, of course, uh, but to ensure that we get our semester off to a very good start, nonetheless. Good luck with the investigation and the restoration of the system, and uh, good luck this semester, Doctor. Thank you so much, Patty, and uh, greetings once again. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Same to you, sir. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Ian Sutherland, VP, Grenfell Campus of Memorial University. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about one of the stories coming out, talk about the preparations for the 2025 Canada Summer Games. Do not go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, preparations are underway for the Canada Summer Games coming up in town and surrounding area in 2025. One of the headlines that's getting a lot of reaction is, here's, here's the headline on VOCM News. Town of Paradise putting up $360,000 toward purchase of volleyball sand. Join us on line number three is the mayor of the Town of Paradise. That's Dan Bobbitt. Mayor Bobbitt, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. So I would imagine you're taking a little bit of heat for this. We'll get into the how, how this happened and why it happened this way, but what's the reaction been inside Paradise? Yeah, well, as you said, you know, the preparation has begun and the bid uh, city was St. John's and the region. So our municipalities in the region are part of that bid and uh, we are uh, hosting the beach volleyball portion of that in addition to uh, box lacrosse. But we'll talk about beach volleyball first. So quite recently, uh, uh, the town approved $360,000 for beach volleyball sand with delivery included. And that as well, obviously, is going to be delivered. Uh, it is a specific sand, obviously, that's, uh, you know, 
sanctioned by uh, Volleyball Canada and the Canada Games, and it's a specific type of sand that is manufactured in only two places. So they gave us the you know recommendation of one of those two two places. We put out the uh, the bid, and uh, Nova Scotia Shaw Group out of Nova Scotia got it. So uh, they're going to supply the sand and delivery, and it's manufactured. It's not beach sand from a beach around anywhere, because as you know, you cannot uh, take sand from a beach or gravel. It's illegal. So anyway, getting back to it. So it has garnered some uh, attention, obviously, uh, but, uh, you know, we're hosting the beach volleyball portion of it. We've got four beach volleyball uh, courts uh, that will remain uh, as a legacy piece after the Canada Games is gone. But in addition to that, we also have a box lacrosse. We negotiated that. We have the two full courts, artificial turf courts, and all the equipment for box lacrosse as well. So we'll be hosting that at our double ice complex. So uh, we're quite excited about that. Uh, you know, it's, 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 you know it's, it's high energy sports. Uh, it's the Canada Games. Uh, you know, the legacy piece, as I mentioned earlier, just think about it. The Aqua Arena was part of one of the Canada Games, I think it was 77. Yeah, 77. And, uh, and right, and they're getting renovated again now. So that you know, piece continues on. And, you know, we're also going to be responsible, I guess, in one way, and we're, going to be, we're excited about that, is to grow box lacrosse in the region as well as beach volleyball. And volleyball in general is, is pretty popular all around. Uh, you know, and you know, we're excited about hosting the sports. And then you look, talk about the economic benefit for the region. Uh, that's what the, the, the piece that you see now council, you know, thought long and hard before we made the decision to be part of this, uh, you know, and, you know, significant amount of money, obviously, as you say, but again, then you got to look at the economic, uh, benefit for the region. You're talking tens of millions of dollars for the, you know, the Avalon Peninsula region. Uh, so uh, not to defend the spend because it's not my job to do anything like that, but just for context, volleyball is the number one sport for females in this province in the country when we talk about enrollment. So that's something to throw out there. When you say the council deliberated long and hard about getting involved here, you had the facility for the most part for the box lacrosse, but did you have any idea that it was going to come with a $360,000 price tag for sand for beach volleyball? Well, you know, up front, that was part of it. Uh, you know, we're looking at it and, and seeing what the costs were. We obviously look into every uh, investment that we make uh, when we're talking recreational amenities within the town. I mean, just like the Double Ace Complex cost $23 million about eight, nine years ago. So, you know, it, it's, it's every decision that we make on council, you know, we look and look into all the details and all the information uh, before we move forward. And, yeah, that was one of the big ones. And, and obviously, you know, sand is quite dense. It's got to be shipped there uh, from out of the province. So I guess the shipping costs are, are a big portion of that as well. Uh, but, again, you, uh, we talk about the legacy piece and beach and volleyball in general, as you say, is one of the number one sports right around. So. Okay, so is all of the $360,000 coming from the property taxpayers and fees payers in the town of Paradise, or does some of that money come from the money that was set aside by the province and the federal government, Canada Games themselves? So is it all ratepayer money coming from Paradise, or can you take some from that other pot? Right right now, it's... So we put forth the ratepayer money, we pay for it, but we are, you know, looking at all opportunities for, uh, you know, funding from provincial or federal, right? Absolutely. All we, all we always do that with any project we do. 
because there's more money comes from the feds than comes from municipalities to host these games. So, you know, some of the issues, if we talk about legacy or economic impact or upfront spend, you know, when I my boy played in the 17 games in Winnipeg, they suggest that the economic upside from hosting the games, even though it comes with upfront cost, economic upside was somewhere around 20 million. So I don't know what it's going to mean here in this region. But I know you're taking some heat on this particular spend. Uh, last one before I let you go, Mayor Bobbitt. You know, I was talking earlier about, you know, the, a survey about 88% of Canadians are worried about speeding in residential areas, what have you. Do we have any idea about how the pilot project worked with speed cameras in your community? Uh, we haven't got all the data back from the province. The province led that. We were part of that. Uh, again, you know, speeding in neighborhoods has been a, a big concern with Town of Paradise for a long time. And, uh, you know, we, we look at slowing down traffic in, in neighborhoods. One of the things we purchased last year was this rubberized curb bump out uh, equipment that we can lay in place anywhere we want to test out the uh, the feature before we do a permanent feature. So, you know, again, speeding, like you said, is a is a big concern all around uh, Avalon. And in Paradise, we, uh, we've been looking at ways that we can uh, do that. We think speed camera radar will work uh, and ticketing system, uh, but the province has got the lead on that. You might want to touch base with them to, to f- find out all the details on that one. Yeah, we've invited Minister Studley on. I know the municipalities played some role. Final compilation of data resp- is responsible responsibility of the province. Did the residents of Paradise welcome it? Because I amazingly hear nothing but negativity regarding speed cameras, and it feels like I'm in the distinct minority who think they're a great idea because, you know, there's nothing that slows you down quite like a police cruiser, but secondly would be a camera. Yeah, absolutely, and they work everywhere else in in uh, the country. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, the people who got in the mail, so there was no tickets issued with monetary amounts on them for the for the kit tests we did or the the pilot project. But the the uh, people that did get identified through the camera ticketing process did get. Uh, a notice in their mailbox basically saying you were traveling this speed uh, you know above the speed the posted speed limit uh, you know and it it was significant amount of numbers above that that uh, that speed that threshold uh, but uh, that's all we know from now but uh, you know again n- nobody wants a ticket but in the dust, those are the people who are going to complain those in other ways as a, a tax grab or whatever but it slows people down just like you said a patrol car uh, with an officer uh, slows you down when they turn on the lights, right? You know, you know you're speeding. All you got to do is look down uh, at your uh, speedometer when you see a, a posted speed limit sign, and you'll know. I appreciate the time, Sporting Mayor. Thank you. Not a problem. Thank Th- you for the opportunity. Take no, care. You too. Bye bye. It's Dan Bobbins. He's the Mayor of Paradise. Final break of the morning and the week. When we come back, Ron's in the queue to talk about emergency rooms. Don't go away. And welcome back. Quick update. So the Newfoundland Growlers game against the Utah Grizzlies, scheduled to be played tonight at 7 p.m. at Mary's Brown Center, is going ahead. If you have a ticket and you're not attending due to any of your concerns regarding adverse weather conditions, <clears throat> you can indeed contact the box office to exchange your ticket for a later date. But the game is going ahead. All right, let's go to line number five. Ron, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Listen, I had the unfortunate thing of visiting the emergency room. Had a broken leg. Oh, no. What happened? Uh, just playing old hockey. Okay, fair enough. But uh happened before Christmas now, and uh, I didn't think it was bad. It was getting better, but had the only appointment I could get was January the 3rd, so I see the family doctor, went for an x-ray, ended up in the emergency room. Everything went well. There were big crowds, Drapati, big crowds, uh, nurses, and everyone working there was 
running after legs when I was either. But w- one thing, Paddy, that I really didn't like is that when you go in to be tri- triaged, you have to line up like a bunch of animals right to the back, and 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 those people are the sickest people around. And they got no. You think you'd be some numbering system that, you know, like you have in in a, in a grade or any variety. They call your number, you go up to, and get triage. But you have to stand behind that yellow line, and people are there two and three hours. I I know it's, there was two hours. There, there, the one lady came up and she said, "I'm ready to go." But I, I believe somehow there should be a numbering system there. You go in, pick your number, sit down, they call you up to the wicket. You know, I, I, I find because those people, had, my broken leg, I wasn't in much pain now, but I, I wasn't very good trying to stand up there. But uh, I, I don't know what you can do with that. I see that in all the places. You pick a number, you sit down, they call you, and you go up. So I'm not sure how come that's not done there. I don't know. It might be just adding another layer of work to an already overworked crowd there's something else people have suggested to me and i think it kind of makes sense so as opposed to when you're sick sitting around a bunch of sick people in a very congested waiting room so you get through the triage and you go sit in your car and they send you a text and you got five minutes to come in you know just to kind of ease some of the pain because obviously you'd be more comfortable with your seat eased back in your car versus cramped up in those crappy little chairs in the emergency room all surrounded by sick people but anyway i don't know how the system can be improved and whether or not that's manageable what you suggest but certainly worth exploring because the wait times are all bad enough in the first place yes patty it don't mean uh like, oh, I wasn't in too bad, and some people in there just had, have no family doctor they had to go. But some, uh, a lot of the people who go there to be tri- triaged, they're the sick, uh, the sick. No, they have no energy to stand up from the hall. And there was a big, long hall. There's probably 10 or 20 people, and at one time they were even out to the door in the line. But by the time you get up, up, up to that week to be triaged, so if you had a number, sit down, they call, whatever the number is, 1 to 100 or 200, whatever the case may be. You see the, I see it down to the uh, St. Clair's when you go in. You go in, you take the number, they call you up to the desk, you have a, you know, a day appointment. Sure. It's, uh, it don't seem complicated, and it makes everything easy, for, especially for the sick of the sick, we call it, right? You don't go to the emergency because you're not really sick. There's something wrong with you, and have to go stand in that line for so long. You know, I thought that was kind of criminal. It certainly doesn't make life easy. So how's recovery going, Ron? Well, he said uh, splint down for eight weeks, hopefully before that. But anyhow, at least I know it's broke. Anyhow, now we can, we can get into mending it. Yeah, it's better than a tear of a ligament or something, all the same. Yeah. So, Ron, I appreciate the suggestion and the time. How often do you play hockey? Uh, three times a week. Good for you. How old are you? Me, yes. Soon we'll soon we get me old age pension. Oh, good on you for still being out on the blades. Nothing better than being in the room with the lads having a pint after. Yeah, no, 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 no pint. We're in paradise, not alcohol. Oh, there you go. Well, the holier than thou crowd out in paradise. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, you know, you got to sneak it. <laughs> Ron, no, I nobody pre- does that in our crowd. No, come on, of course not. Ron, you take good care of yourself. Get well soon. Yeah, take care, buddy. All the best. Bye bye. All right, final word this morning goes to line number two. As we say good morning to the Director of External Affairs at Memorial University's Student Union. That's John Harris. John, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Couldn't be better. How about you? Great. 
I'm I'm good. I'm good. Uh, so I'm just calling in here to talk about uh, two young women uh, who named Moran and Marilyn, who came here in October from from Gaza. Uh, they're they're both from Gaza, and they're uh, looking to get reunified with their their two uh, brothers uh, who are in South Gaza right now are trying to uh, get out of the country. Um, so what we're what we're what we're seeing now from the the federal government is a a thousand uh, refugee um, visas being administered. Uh, so, so we're, we're, what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, put pressure on the government to increase that that limit, because uh, because right now, you know, a thousand visas is, is not a lot. Uh, if you're looking at the scale of, of how many people will be applying for this, um, we're 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 really, you know, it, it compared to the, the generosity which we rightfully gave to to Ukraine, uh, it's 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 pretty. It's it's very very low compared to the to the hundreds uh, of thousands of, of of visas we were able to give to Ukraine. Uh, so I, I think that it's really only fair that we extend this this visa requirement. Well, I mean, we fast tracked people from Ukraine, and you know I I don't want to get too deep down in the weeds because I'm kind of mentally drained come Friday at eleven fifty six and thirty six seconds. But there's no coincidence that we respond to conflict whether it be in places like Ukraine versus Yemen or Lebanon or countries in Africa and, yes, Gaza. There's some underlying obvious issue that makes for this difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, these two young women, they uh, were looking to do a GoFundMe because uh, unlike in the case of Ukraine, there's there's no financial support for, for them. Uh, so we're we're looking to do a GoFundMe. Um, uh, I just just want to tell your listeners, you know, stay stay in tune and uh, uh, have a look for for that when it comes uh, online. Um, and uh, you know, I think we need. I'd like to make an appeal to uh, uh, MP Oregan. They live they live in his uh, constituency. Uh, if if Minister, you know, we we're in touch with the office. Hopefully, we can get a uh, a meeting with his constituency office soon. Um, uh, we 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 need all the help we can get to to make sure that you know these these two young women have the chance to be reunified with their with their brothers. Uh, you know this is you know one of the worst positions to be in as a family. And and, and if we can you know increase the support and, and get some advocacy from from their MP, uh, I think that would be uh, you know really the least we can do uh, as 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 country. And as a province. Very last one before we quickly run out of time here, John. Uh, any thoughts about the reaction, not only by the people out at Grenfell and Mun proper, but politicians? Because cybersecurity is going to be a big part of our lives going forward, already is. So any thoughts on what happened out at uh, Grenfell? I, I, I'm definitely, you know, concerned about uh, classes being delayed for people up in Grenfell. Uh, I know that the, the Grenfell Campus Student Union uh, is speaking on the matter as well, and the disruption is, is, is quite quite terrible. I really hope that, that the students there get, uh, you know, back on track and, you know, get uh, – I, I feel that there's, you know, maybe even some compensation in order for this kind of delay. There, there's, there's a, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's going to be an ongoing thing. This is the new age. We're going to be getting these attacks, and we need to beef up our security, and we need to be, you know, aware that these, these types of attacks are going to come more and more frequent. I appreciate the time. We've run out of it here this morning, John. Stay in touch. Thank you so much, Betty. You're Have welcome. a good one. Bye bye, John Harris, the, the director of external affairs at the Student Union at Memorial University. <clears throat> All right, pretty good week to kick off 2024 here on Open Line. 
obviously with a bit of snow in the offing apparently it's already started out around central or out around Clarenville I guess and down the Bjorn Peninsula hasn't really quite come to pass here in the metro region but we all got to put on our winter driving uh, behavior hat because you know all right big thanks to everyone who supports the program and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM open line on behalf of the producer David Williams I'm your host Patty Daly have yourself a safe fun happy weekend we'll talk on Monday Bye-bye.